three, two, one. Welcome to Atwood Unleashed number 90. Co-hosted by Stephen Knight, whose links are in the description box. So please support what he is doing on his channel and his Substack. And tonight we have got an amazing lineup organized by Ash. And we will be announcing our Gary Glitter poll results shortly. So <laughs> we've got a double whammy of round tables in the YouTube section because we're going to go over to Patreon at 810. And we're going to kick off with a war on drugs roundtable discussion with independent journalist Toby Muse, who's been on the front lines covering the trade of the white in Colombia and is an author of Kilo, Life and Death Inside the Secret World of the White Trades. And then we've got Insight Crimes Managing Editor Chris Dalby, who investigates organized crime in Latin America and the Caribbean and Mexico and Brazil and China. And then Stephen is hosting roundtable number two. Yeah, from between seven and eight, I'll be uh, speaking uh, to Graham Smith. He'll be welcome back. Uh, to the show. He's from Republic.org for a roundtable discussion on whether the British monarchy has a future. Uh, Graham Smith is an experienced public speaker and an authority on the issues of monarchy and republicanism. Uh, he's been campaigning for Republic for almost 20 years as a volunteer and then working for Republic.org. Uh, historian, author, biographer and literary agent Andrew Lowney will also return to Atwood Unleashed tonight. Uh, Andrew wrote the books uh, The Mountbattens, Their Lives and Loves and The Traitor King, to, and this uh, was too much acclaim. Um, and then I think it's back over to you or back over to Patreon, should I say. Indeed it is. Just a quick shout out to Matthew Steeples, one of our co-hosts and guests, who just put a message in the chat. Matthew's got the most viral video of the week award. He did a Meghan Markle expose a couple of nights ago, which has got over 100,000 views. So well done, Matthew. And if you've not seen Matthew's Meghan Markle expose, check it out on the channel. If you want to see Matthew do part two, Meghan Markle expose, put a one in the chat. If you don't want Matthew to do another Meghan Markle expose, <laughs> put a two in the chat. <laughs> right, and then at 8.10 on Patreon, we've got Brad Abrahams, filmmaker, commercial director from Canada, based in the USA. His all-consuming interest in weird science and general esoterica inspires stories as he covers things like cryptozoology, a short film he made called Love and Sources, which is the story of David Huggins, 72-year-old Hoboken man who had a lifetime of encounters with otherworldly beings, including an interspecies romance with an extraterrestrial woman. Of course. <laughs> Obviously. <clears throat> um, and chronicled it all in surreal impressionist <laughs> paintings. <laughs> 9 40 Kevin Annette is back he's banned from YouTube he's going to be talking about people at the top of the Vatican at the top of politics at the top of the royalty who have the affliction of being attracted to minors let's just say for the purposes of, of this channel My, people, um, who dig, people who dig for coal or children children those yes <laughs> <laughs> and um Everyone's voted one on Matthew Steeples. It is unanimous, 100%. Ones, 
for him to do a Meghan Markle expose part two. You're not getting out of it, Matthew. They voted for one, so there you are. And then Stephen. Yeah, from uh, 9.10 tonight, big discussion. Uh, the last guest of the night is Siddharth Kara, uh, whose recent podcast you may have seen with Joe Rogan on uh, cobalt mining in the Congo went absolutely viral. Uh, Siddharth is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, an investigative journalist, and activist on modern slavery. Uh, he's a British Academy Global Professor and an Associate Professor of Human Transporting and Modern Slavery at Nottingham University. Uh, he has authored three books on modern slavery and won the Frederick Douglass Book Prize. Wow. Right. I'm going to announce the poll results. So we've got the results have come in from the Gary Glitter poll. <laughs> it's no surprise. It's pretty unanimous. We've on the YouTube right now, we've got one. 1,300 votes. Housing Gary Glitter in a village where kids play is A, disgusting, B, normal, C, other putting comments. So A has got 94%, B has got 5%, oddly enough, and other has got 2%. That's on YouTube. The same poll on Twitter has got a bit different results. We have got... How many people have voted? Let's have a look. Only 182 votes so far on Twitter. We've got 91% are disgusted, 7% normal, 2% other. What are your thoughts, Stephen? On Gary Glitter? Yeah. Um, I think his crimes are well documented, so there's not much point dwelling on that. I suppose often when like a famous person does something horrendous, there's this massive debate about whether you can still enjoy their art. Uh, but luckily, his music's absolute garbage, so we don't have to worry. <laughs> Even the Spice Girls took that. What was it? Uh, was it my gang out of the Spice World movie? Oh, did, oh okay. I'm right. the leader. I'm the leader. I think it He was. should have took far more out of that movie than a Gary Glitter song. <laughs> <laughs> um. Matthew Steeples, as for Gary Glitter, see my latest, he's a very evil man. And if you go to the Steeples Times, Matthew Steeples is the proprietor of, you will get to read his latest account of Gary Glitter. Put a one in the chat. If you want to see Steeples, come on and do a section on Gary Glitter. Put a two in the chat if you don't want to hear anything from anyone about Gary Glitter. Did you think it was peculiar that a Gary Glitter song was featured in the Todd Phillips Joker movie quite prominently in a pivotal scene in the film to the point where I think a lot of Americans are not familiar with him as a, as a song. I want to say artist, but that's a bit generous, isn't it? As a, as a performer, I think listen to his song a lot, which obviously would have generated substantial royalties for him while he was in prison. Just seems like a rather strange song choice for such a mainstream movie. What year did that come out, Stephen? About two years ago. Just just pre-pandemic, I believe. Which song was it, do you remember? Um, That's bizarre, isn't it? I can't remember which one it was. I, I, can, I can hear it, but I don't know the name. Because there's all kinds of speculation about him still receiving royalties from this stuff and it funding his evil behaviour. Um, yeah. 
perhaps Matthew Steeple could expand on that. Perhaps Matthew Steeple should come on and do a Megan Gary Glitter special, all rolled into one. I'm just going to read some of the comments then on this poll because they are serious to amusing. Um, Emma Platt said there doesn't need to be an option that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Rob said doesn't matter where he's put, he's going to offend. They need to monitor him at all times. As we all know, the second he gets a chance, he will destroy his next victim's life. And that's what the government doesn't realize about these sickos who need zeros added onto their sentences. It's absolutely heinous that if you've got some kind of illegal substance in your house, the cops are there in a heartbeat. But if you report a crime like this or a crime against a woman, the things hardly ever get prosecuted and there's hardly any convictions. And when they do get convicted, they get slaps on the wrist. So the whole justice system is upside down. It's sickening. There's some cunts. Trouble is, no matter you put him, there's going to be kids nearby in a city. You might be able to offend and go unnoticed in a village. Might be hard to get away with. I'm not on his side. He should rot in prison. Kieran says, I can't believe people are not hunting him for fun. They are hunting him, Kieran. They've tried to break into the halfway house. There's all kinds of madness. He's been doxxed and exposed. It's on the southern coast. It's not far from me, actually. Put a one in the chat if you want me to go on doorstep, Gary Glitter. Put a two in the chat if I probably should stay away from that kind of behavior. Jilly B. We had a convicted one near us, and his window overlooked the children's park. The police failed to respond, as did the council, so the dads went and smashed him. Problem solved. He left. This is what I'm saying. If you've committed an offence with illegal substances, the cops are all over you. You've got an ankle bracelet. You're going to get a massive sentence. You committed an offence against kids. They put you somewhere, there are kids, they don't give a shit, they hardly protect society from these evil B-words. He needs an ankle bracelet just for crimes against music. The red flags were already there. It hurts me to cough right now, I've got a, it hurts me to laugh, I've got this uh, throat situation. Maureen says he shouldn't be out, he's only served half of his sentence. Agreed. They should at the very least serve 100% of those sentences. Why are they getting breaks when this is the most evil type of crime in society, crimes against kids? I watched this documentary called um, Gary Glitter Come Home and they were tracking his movements through Asia and they went in these villages and they went to this compound and they said, yeah, he'd showed up there, pretended to be a doctor and he was getting his guitar out at night and getting all the kids around him and then they went through another village where he went, and the families were bringing their kids out, oh, no. offering them for sale to the journalists. And they were recording them undercover. They asked John for a couple of hours, John for a couple of days. And he was in this country specifically because of you know, the availability of these kids. Absolutely revolting and sickening. I assume his passport will be confiscated, as well as his guitar, hopefully. Yeah, let's look what Matthew Steeples has put. No, he needs locking up for what he did te to 10-year-olds, actually. This is what matters, putting back in the clink with Rolf Harris also. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a sickening... Is it... I think there's a Savile clip with um, Glitter on YouTube if people want to Google it. It's absolutely sickening. I think Ray J just reminded us in the chat that it was the song Rock and Roll Part 2 that was featured in The Joker, one of his most famous songs. I think I only know two of his songs, to be fair. She's too, oh, too I many. Didn't get any, I hope we didn't get any royalties from that. 
I'd be interested to know what the legality is behind that. I mean, morally, it feels wrong, but could you could you prevent someone from earning on their their art just because they're incarcerated? I don't know what the rules are. I should all be going to his victims. Mm. Um, Michael says it's unfortunately way too common and standard. Many end up located near parks. Blows my mind how that isn't a consideration in housing them. You shouldn't have been let out, Michael says. Even after all of the, his historical activities, he committed, he went straight out to Vietnam and carried on. Thinking he had a free reign to prey out on kids out there. Indeed, watch. Gary Glitter, come home if you can get your hands on it, anyone. You will see what he was up to out there. Um, Harve, these sort of people should never be let out or should be chemically castrated. I'm all for that. Jason says, from a moral perspective, I would argue that letting him live at all is shady. <laughs> Unambiguous. Yeah. SB says, he's probably doing a children in need track for the BBC. Should know better, says, I am disgusted, but I've clicked it's normal. Maria says, prolific offenders don't worry where they're housed. They will find a way to carry on the vile, perverse urges. He should have done his full sentence. It's disgusting, but we're not surprised. Whoever voted normal needs their computers investigating. <laughs> <laughs> Marianne, it should, he should still be in jail. He will only offend again like he did last time. The world has lost the plot. Jewel says that he deserves to be homeless on the streets out in the cold. I wonder how this makes homeless people feel, let alone the parents of the local kids. Richie says it's both disgusting and sadly normal for this country. Joseph says, why don't we let him open his own school and nursery? While we are at it, he should be stuck on an island on his own somewhere. <laughs> I don't need this here. <laughs> wow. All right. We've, uh, we're, all, we're moving on to our first debate. Roundtable. So, uh, Stephen, thank you for being with us, and we will see you in an hour or so. See you soon. Thanks for all the comments, everyone. Cheers, brother. All right. So, as you guys know, I've written a series of books on the war on drugs. Deconstructing Mass Incarceration, the Prison Industrial Complex, the role of the CIA in transporting these substances, white, which we are going to call white, green and brown for the purposes of this interview and now we have two big time experts in the field we've got toby and chris huge thank you for coming on both you guys and i'll start with toby because oh, chris yeah he's, he's on mute now um toby huge thank you for coming on could you just tell the viewers a little about a bit about you and your expertise please Absolutely, Sean. Good to see you again. It's a pleasure Cheers. to be back on the show. Thanks for the invite. So I've covered, um, what are we calling it? White. The white trade. Um, the trade in white, which comes out of uh, the Andean region for about the past 15 years or so. Um, I've reported on it. I've uh, written a book about the whole industry, um, the cartels associated with it. And I've tried to report from the front lines always, you know, to be involved and get the words of the people who are who are in it be on either side of that front line so the people in the underworld but also you know the cops and the agents who are fighting against it and i published a book a couple of years ago called uh, kilo inside the cartels and um yep and that was kind of a, a kind of showing how this industry starts 
in the kind of the fields and mountains of Colombia where it's produced and all of the hands it passes through on its way to the richest countries in the, on, on earth where, uh, who are on the general, uh, the consumers. All right, thank you. Chris, huge thank you for coming on, spending time with us. Can you tell the viewers a little bit about your expertise? Of course. Thank you so much for having me on, Sean. Uh, this is my first time here. Uh, so I'm the managing editor of Insight Crime, uh, which is a think tank dedicated to studying organized crime in all its facets um, across Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, where Toby has, has um, published extensively about Colombia, my expertise is more on Mexico, uh, specifically the evolution, um, the very rapid evolution of the um, of the cartels there. So whether we're talking about the, the expansion of the Jalisco cartel, um, the evolution of the Sinaloa cartel, the move now towards uh, towards fentanyl and the rise of synthetic drugs. Um, Inside Crime is always about providing that sort of second wave analysis, those deep dives into what it means that, you know, at a policy level, um, what it tells us about shifting criminal dynamics. Um, and yeah, we try and provide the voice both on the front lines and also from the uh, from the policy side. All right, let's fire off some questions then. I'll start with Toby again. Why is it more prolific than ever, especially the white right now around the world? I mean, when I came back from America to England, for example, uh, I left in 91, came back in 2007. And, you know, the pubs over here, when I left, everyone was going out having a drink and whatever. But now they're just completely flooded with the white, all the different pubs over here. Um, why is it just expanding constantly? Well, there's a number of ex explanations here. But first off, let me just say anyone who's not subscribed to Insight should do. Chris is doing a great job there at Insight Crime. It's this just incredible resource for all of this kind of thing on the underworld in Latin America. Um, but back to your question. Um, so there's a number of reasons. Basically, I would say one of the biggest reasons is that we had this major peace process in 2016 in Colombia. So you had much of the white was being produced in parts of the countries that were controlled by the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia, the FARC. And the essence, to get down to the basic essence of this uh, peace deal was, the FARC said, we will lower our guns, we will demobilize. We're going to hand over all of this territory to the central government. It's yours. So where all of this is being produced, you're now in charge of this. So for the first time, this was the essence, again, of this peace process. For the first time in Colombian history, can you arrive to these mountains and jungles and far off uh, villages and provide the basics of society, basic law and order, basic education, basic health care? If you can, that's the, that was the peace process. So the FARC lowered their weapons, they demobilized, they ceased to control the territory, and the government just didn't turn up. It just did not turn up. To take a peace process and really simplify it, the government did, did not turn up. So you had all of these parts of the country where all of the coca was being grown suddenly up for grabs. It was a starting pistol for all of the illegal groups to then get there first to take over. Because if you're an illegal group, if you control this, you get more money, you can grow quicker, you can recruit quicker, you can be better armed than your enemy. It becomes a virtuous circle for them. So all of these new groups, groups that had never really been involved in the trade, were now suddenly getting involved in it. And you saw all of these new groups. I don't think there's a, per I'm sure there is a person probably who works for Insight Crime, but there's very few people on the planet who can name every single illegal group in Colombia right now. If you'd asked me five years ago, I could have named them. 
Now there's entire regions where there's six groups fighting each other. Defenders of the border, just these groups have just sprung up out of nowhere, all with the idea of taking control of the industry. Another thing that I think hasn't really been reported on as much as it could have been, in my opinion, again, I'd be interested to hear what Chris says about this. I think the variance of the COCA is an underreported story. If you're looking at about 15 years ago, there were probably about two, three, four variants of COCA. Now the police recognize at least 14. And so what you're talking about is maybe the bush grew a meter, two meters. Well, now there's ones that will grow for three meters. So that means necessarily there's more coca being produced and it's more efficient. When it's turned into the final product, the white, it's delivering more. So you have all of these factors kind of coming together. And now we're looking at roughly, I think, 2,000 tons is estimated to being produced. I mean, 2,000 tons, that is enough to get the planet high. I mean, that is so much, so much of the white is out there. And I do, hopefully we can get into a little bit because I think too often this is seen as just a Colombian problem or it's just seen as an English problem, as a consumer problem. This is a global problem. Everything is connected to everything else. And we're seeing it in new parts of the world. Saudi Arabia apparently is starting to see the white appear there. I was in Afghanistan a year ago uh, filming a documentary. People told me prior to the Taliban takeover, you could get a gram of the white for $300. Afghanistan. So there's just so much of it out there it's not only are we seeing purity levels in places like London going up for the same price, it's also finding new markets in order to, um, to, uh, to uh, yeah, yeah, there's finding new markets to sell. And just my final point, again, let's remember, as this stretches across the planet, it's making the local mafias and gangs richer than they've ever been. So that gang who controls the trade in London now has more money than ever. They can recruit they can get better weapons. They can start to bribe people. That's what's coming for large parts of Europe. Bribery, I think. And I think I'm very, very worried about that. And that's what the media's not telling us here. We've got all this knife crime in London. You know, the vast majority of it revolves around these young people competing for that black market profits in these substances that's ultimately been created by drug laws. So Chris, can we get your thoughts, please? I, I mean, I agree completely with, with Toby and his book, Kilo, is one of the seminal uh, references about the, the industry of the white. We always talk about how illegal economies mirror legal economies. They're subject to the same pressures, the same business decisions. They're just doing it in a different setting. The white is now a global commodity. It is in demand all around the world, emerging countries as they have a growing middle class and a growing you know upper class are asking for white and they're getting it and they're willing to pay top dollar for it wherever it may be we've been doing some work on uh, on australia the the white connection to australia and to a lesser extent in new zealand a few days ago in the waters off new zealand they didn't say exactly where about six days uh, out from from new zealand they found three and a half tons of white floating in 82 packets. For reference, that is 45 to 50% bigger than the record seizure in Australia ever. According to the Australian police and uh, to the New Zealand police, and I have no way of verifying this, that is enough to supply 
the known market in Australia for a year in a single ship. Now, Australia and New Zealand are, are a little bit different because they send the white there in bulk because it's so difficult and so far away. Whereas usually if you're supplying the white to North America or Europe, you're sending it, yes, in multi-ton shipments, but in a variety of ways and you know in a variety of, of, um, of different methods. And you the cost of doing business is you're going to lose 15, 20 percent in, in, in seizures, right? The economics are a bit different when you're going as far as Australia, but it shows the demand. It shows what they're willing to sacrifice in a single shipment. Three and a half tons is, you know, is significant. Um, the global economics of the white are also moving eastwards. As, um, as Toby said, Saudi Arabia, um, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, are now major trading destinations for the white. And that is possible because Europe is now the center for the white's demand. And, and, and it is the target destination for uh, traffickers in Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, Brazil. They're sending it into Antwerp. They're sending it into Rotterdam. They're sending it into Le Havre, into Hamburg. It's not the US anymore. Of course, the US demand is still, is still present, but it is diminishing in importance um, as compared to Europe. So you're saying that European demand is now higher than American? By demonstrably so. Okay. If you look at if you look at the number of, of seizures in Europe uh, compared to um, to the volume in America, and you look at the at the prices that a kilo of cocaine will get, and of course that increases exponentially as you go as you go east, it's it's a simple business decision for the for the for the traffickers. So, Toby, we talked about the role of Colombia in this, but what about the role of the Mexican cartels? I'll stick to talking about their, their operating in Colombia because I'm not very much of an expert on Mexico itself. It's a, it's, it's, it is very different, the underworld there, from increasingly we are seeing, uh, and we have been over the recent years, um, stronger links between the Mexican cartels and their presence on the ground in Colombia. To my mind, I'm still a little unclear, and I'd be interested to hear uh, what Chris thinks about this as well. To my mind, I'm not entirely sure what that relationship is. You will hear about certain zones of the country that there's just a presence of Mexicans there. So you talk about Catatumbo up on the region next to the border with Venezuela, Friends of friends have told me, oh, yeah, you know, there's a presence of Mexicans there. People have told me in Cali, it's an accent that you can now hear in some of the better restaurants. This is all anecdotal, by the way. But you can also see um, it, there have been some captures in Colombia by the police. I don't think that many. My question is, what are they doing on the ground? Because if you hear from some people, they'll say, well, the Mexicans are taking over. The Mexicans are now giving orders. Other people say, well, no, and I'll be on this side of the debate as well. I think what we're looking at is emissaries, because if you look at the conflict of Colombia, this is decades, if not generations, if not centuries of basically always the same fight, fight for territory. And it's been taken many different forms in the political civil war, then a uh, drug trafficking, drug transporting war between different people. But in the end, it's been this fight for territory. It's very linked almost to a kind of conquistador mentality 500 years ago. The more land I have, the more powerful I am. So the idea that people could turn up from Sinaloa and just say, we rule here, I just can't see it. Because the first wave gets there, the first group, the Colombians say, 
well, I don't think so. They kill them. Then what happens? The guys in Sinaloa, they've got to get on a plane, fly in and say, OK, we're the backup. I, you know, you just see the problem with it. So I think what we're seeing is a much more symbiotic relationship. I think we have emissaries from these Mexican cartels who are turning up to oversee quality to make sure, OK, you told us five tons was coming. Yes, I'm here on the ground. Five tons is there. But I don't think there's that kind of relationship of them running the industry. I could be wrong. And again, it is kind of very mysterious. It's very murky. But we're certainly seeing in the past three, four years, much, much more um, of that, much deeper links, I think, between the Colombians and the Mexicans in certain parts. Again, the Mexicans, as to get back to Chris's point, the Mexicans, as far as I'm aware, are not going to be involved in anything to do with Europe. That's much more likely to leave via Venezuela where the Mexicans have nothing to do. The Mexicans are involved when you're crossing what is a Mexican smuggler, no better than anything, how to get across the US border. That's where their value is. When it comes to Europe, well, you know, I think you're dealing with different mafias there. So again, I think, you know, it depends where the white is going, the role of the Mexicans. And when it comes to Europe then, does it go directly to Europe or does it go elsewhere? Like the African coast or some other place to be, is it kind of like bounced from another place to, into Europe? There are a multitude of routes. Um, you know, a lot of it goes out of Brazil through the port of Santos near Sao Paulo, and that goes straight to Europe because it's, it's the biggest, it's one of the biggest container ports in South America. A lot of it goes through the Panama Canal. There's a, a significant logistical hub for the cocaine trade in the um, the Panama port of Colón, which is the Atlantic entrance to the um, to the Panama Canal. And from there, it goes really anywhere. It can bounce, as you said, to uh, to Europe. A lot of it bounces through the Spanish islands. We've even seen some going through uh, New York. There's so much cocaine coming out right now that it's a little bit of a free-for-all. Um, the, the UN Container Control Program does what it can in terms of training ports to try and detect but they're, they're getting still a, a large fraction, but a, a minority. Um, the involvement, to, to, to just touch on, on Toby's point, is a very, there is no firm evidence, and inside crime is on the ground in Colombia, on the ground in Venezuela. There is no firm evidence of the Mexican cartels being involved in those countries beyond the role of emissaries. None that we have found. Uh, and we've heard the hearsay. We've heard the accents. We've heard, yeah, there's drug planes with Mexicans. For sure, there are ambassadors, emissaries, brokers. The Mexicans are getting quite strong in sourcing Colombian cocaine through Ecuador. Let, um, let's call it white, Chris. White, apologies. <laughs> um, a lot of Colombian white is going through Ecuador and out to Panama and to Mexico. The full role of the Mexican cartels in Ecuador is not fully understood, but it, it is a, a significant uh, presence. When it comes to Europe, it comes in through certain, uh, let's say, corridors, right? The big, the big European ports. Antwerp, Rotterdam, Hamburg were always the, the classic ones. As those ports have become more adept at detecting large quantities of white, they've shifted towards smaller ports, Lisbon, Le Havre in France, uh, a number of, of ports in the UK. And uh, a country that is now becoming a significant platform for receiving the white and shipping it east is Turkey. Um, Instagram has, has done a couple of reports on, on the Turkish um, link between South American groups and, um, and groups going into Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. 
there's even some, and this is unconfirmed, this is not something Inside Crime has reported on, of swaps between um, Colombian white and, uh, and Afghan uh, drugs. Afghan brown. All right, Toby. So the Colombian new president has said he wants to end the war on drugs. How practical is that with the Americans insisting that every country in the world be in compliance with the war on drugs? Are they going to lose their economic aid? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, he's obviously... A, I mean, hats off to him because what we have is we've had kind of almost for a generation now, we've had Latin American presidents basically go along with the war on drugs when they're in office, leave office when they become the elder statesman, but also powerless. And then they start giving interviews about, well, you know, I mean, we need to change the war on drugs. Well, okay, it's not very useful now, is it? So hats off to him and also hats off to the previous Colombian president, Juan Manuel Santos, who also tried to get that conversation going, really tried to get a global conversation going and to the world's shame, there was just, he was met with silence. But so Petro, Gustavo Petro, the new uh, the new president of Colombia, in his inaugural speech, says that the war on drugs has failed. So this is going to be a central plank of his government. And I think they're going to look at certain things. So, for instance, the legalization, probably again, Chris can correct me when I, if I get this wrong. But I think uh, the legalization of the green, you know, uh, things like that. Um, that, I think, is going to be relatively easy for the country to do. And it's not that tough, and it's a kind of simple decision, yes or no. Okay, what do we do? The problem is the white. And it's very difficult to really understand exactly how far they can go. And I've spoken to members of the government who are really central to this, or supporters of the government, I should say. Uh, there's one senator... Yeah, who's been very central to this whole discussion and very supportive of the government. And when you speak to him and you say, okay, but what are you going to do if the Americans just say no? It's, it's not very clear to me. It's really not very clear what they want to do beyond, I mean, I don't even know if they can really sort out a regulated coca market if that coca is going to ha land in the in the in the hands of people who will then transform it into something else into to turn it into the drug because it's all very good to talk about well you can make coca tea and you can make um all of these other things from it yes and that should be encouraged you know certainly some of the indigenous practices rituals do rely on coca they absolutely ought to have uh, the freedom to do that but at some point if that legal coca ends up being transformed into an illegal drug that is going to put Colombia on a course for clash with many other countries across the world. And I don't really know how they're going to avoid it. And they themselves, one thing they do talk about is one thing they would like to see is changing the Vienna Convention, which is, again, I have to kind of go back and remember, but the Vienna Convention, I believe, basically obliges a government to fight against illegal drugs in most cases. Uh, and that's one thing I know that they are in seeking to avoid. But a final thing is Colombia has it very clearly that it cannot do this alone. And again, that goes back to this idea of this being a global crisis. Colombia cannot do this alone because they know they'll become a pariah. If they legalize the white tomorrow, it's over for Colombia. Ecuador will be shutting borders. 
Venezuela, Panama. I mean, it will be over. It, it cannot do this, and it should not be expected to fight this alone. The rest of the world consumes what Colombia produces. The guilt is spread out. Everybody needs to come up with a comprehensive problem. The UK, the USA, instead of just saying, oh, go fumigate some more, go take out another drug couple. No, I mean, we need to collectively figure this out. And final thing, by the way, on this, I think Colombia can turn around and say to the world, why are you guys consuming so much? Instead of asking us why we're producing so much, why don't you get a hold of why your citizens in London consume so much of the white? Because I don't even think anybody understands. At least 20, 30 years ago, Nancy Reagan, as corny as it was, was just say no. It was stupid. But at least they were trying. What do they do today? They're just, huh, we give up. We don't even know. We don't even bother to ask the questions anymore. Why are people in London more likely to consume the white than they are in, say, Amsterdam or you know, or Sweden or Stockholm or something. I, 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 I've, I, that seems to be to be missing from the conversation we're having. Chris, do you think that with all these vested interests, especially based out of America, little countries announcing they're going to end the war on drugs is futile? For me, there's, there's both clear-cut positives and negatives to what Gustavo Petro is trying to do. First of all, any new approach and actually sitting down and negotiating with groups and listening to them and giving them a voice, I find encouraging. Even at the end of the day, if it doesn't lead to, uh, to any lasting peace deal, if it leads to understanding and not simply demonizing an 18-year-old who picks up, you know, who, who picks up a, a, a drug package and automatically becomes a career criminal that has to be wiped out, I think is a positive advance. And in Colombia, even after Santos, that, that is fairly uncharted territory. So I do think Petro, as unfeasible as his project may be, needs some plaudits for what he's trying to do. It is an incredibly tough ask. Incredibly tough ask. I mean, he's dealing with groups who have paramilitary, political traditions, right? Who are who turned to the drug trade or to criminal economies as a way to finance their often outlandish political agendas. And then he's negotiating with groups that have none of that. None of even that shred of credibility, if you want to put it that way, who are just drug traffickers. They're in it for the problem. They're in it because they're fulfilling that demand. I think Toby's point to why we don't ask why the world is consuming the white instead of putting all the blame on, on Colombia is an excellent one. And I think it's because it's complicated. In the media, in the press, in government policies, what do we see? We see an attitude of taking out the kingpin as if that has ever made a difference. Cocaine didn't, didn't go away under Escobar. The white didn't go away under Escobar. It didn't go away after El Chapo. It won't go away under Ovidio Guzman. It won't go away if they shut down the Sinaloa and the Jalisco cartels. It, it honestly won't go away even if all the groups involved in Pastotal uh, sign a peace deal. It is a commodity, as we discussed at the very beginning. But it's easier to look at groups with, with funny names like the Defenders of the Border. It's... it's easy to, to describe it as, you know, uh, an underground, illegal thing that, that is, is, is hidden away. It's not hidden away. It's in the city of London. It's in Amsterdam. It's in Saudi Arabia. It's in tons of, off the coast of New Zealand. It's everywhere. And until policymakers reckon with that, that it requires an international solution, we're not going to go anywhere. We've got a question, Toby, from one of the viewers, uh, Matthew Steeples, who's also a guest, been a guest on the show. 
And he says, what are the panel's views on the times having said that the white is the middle class disease above alcohol? Um, I mean, I know where they're getting to it. Again, this to me is kind of when it's a sign that everybody's just throwing up their hands and acknowledging that the war on drugs has completely failed. When you can't stop it getting into the country, you can't stop it crossing your borders. You can't stop it being sold. You can't stop it like any old, any middle-class family can pick up the phone and have it delivered to their home. When your police force who have had so much money thrown at them and they can't stop that. So what do you do? You turn around and blame the victim. Uh, not the victim, sorry. You blame the consumer, not the victim. But let's go back to a prohibition. What we know happened in America a hundred years ago when they banned the sale of alcohol. Again, we don't look back at prohibition and say, you know who the villain of that was? The woman who was buying herself a cocktail in an underground bar. We just don't. We don't look back on prohibition and say the real villain was the person consuming the alcohol in a party, in a bar, when the sale of alcohol was illegal. No, we look back at prohibition and say the entire legal framework was impossible. You created this black market by the act of prohibition. And so that's my reaction to this, that no, we're blaming the consumer. And yes, I think we do need a nuanced debate that says Colombia is not alone in this. Just by producing it does not make Colombia the only guilty party. This business runs on supply and demand, and I'm happy to have that conversation. But it just seems this way of trying to beat down people and just to, instead of acknowledging that prohibition is simply not working. So they say, well, you know, okay. I would also ask the question further again, it goes back to why people are taking drugs. Why are more fam why are more middle-class families taking this? Why are more of these couples taking it? I think there's some deeper questions about how happy we are with our societies. You know, again, I don't mean to become philosophical, but sometimes people take these things because they feel alienated from their neighbors. Maybe society around them is kind of, they don't feel that human connection. But again, we need a more adult dis di discussion about uh, the taking of these substances. There's a professor in uh, New York called Dr. Carl Hart, who wrote a book, I think, called uh, someone can correct me on the title, but taking drugs for adults or something, where he openly talks about how he recreationally takes brown and it's basically done him no harm. He says, this is fine, you know, for me. And I think that's basically the truth. We need to be honest about this. In my experience, knowing people who have used some of these substances, let's go back to white. Basically, seeing people I know, they go through a phase. That phase could be a month, or a year, but essentially they consume it and then they move on. Very, very, very few people have lasting problems with this. We know that because the clinics in America and in London are not filled with addicts. That's just a fact. They're not, the overdoses are not being like, the bodies are not stacking up in the morgue because of overdoses. When we talk about brown, that changes a lot. That's extraordinarily addictive. But when we're talking about white, it just does not have that health effect that we do see with brown. Again, this is not to say go out and consume it. But I think we need a more adult conversation than the one we see. Because in the popular media, you'll see in a Hollywood film, a young girl of 18 will snort a line, 
five scenes later, she's standing on a straight corner selling her body because, you know, and again, that's just not, most people know that's not the case. They've had personal experience with this or they've had friends. And that's why they laugh at the media sometimes when the media starts to talk about these things. Just going to add a bit to that before I go over to Chris then, because you mentioned the black market, uh, just how compelling the profits are. So for the for the viewers, then just let me break this down a little bit. So I've written five books about Escobar. And when I was researching those books, I learned that he could source a kilo of coca paste from Peru or Bolivia for about $60. This was in the 1970s. And then the, the, a kilo of the white on the streets of America was going for $60,000, $70,000. So basically... These plants, which are almost worthless to harvest, uh, the, the drug laws have created the value of them as more than gold, which has been the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world for organized crime to flood the entire world with drugs, which just gets bigger every year. And even Milton Friedman, the economist, wrote to George H.W. Bush and warned that this would happen. Um, but you know, all, all these politicians seem to like to do is, like you guys have pointed out, arrest the, the, the mafia bosses get a picture you know with the mafia boss in chains and a huge stash of white uh just to increase their votes and i think that's why some of the scandinavian countries have had more success with drug and prison policy because they took it out the hands of these hypocritical politicians um but but going, going back to you chris so we've, we've interviewed a guy on the channel called og shadow and he's been talking about the sinaloa cartel the internal battle the Chapitos versus Mencho. Um, could you ex expand on that a bit for us? Of course. Um, so to start with, it's it's important to understand that the Sinaloa cartel was never this monolith. It's it's often reported that El Chapo was this, you know, Escobar-like head of the pyramid, head of the table of this very vertical hierarchical structure. He was absolutely the most powerful kingpin in, in Mexico in his time. But the Sinaloa cartel has always been a fairly horizontal organization in nature, right? Very territorial. The, you know, the, the, the made men, to use the, the mafia term, were from rural, uh, rural um, uh, Sinaloa. Um, and so when El Chapo is removed and his, his, let's say, his generation are aging, a lot of them have been captured, a lot of them are no longer, don't no longer have the noose for this, right? you have the, the rise of his sons and others as well. I mean, the Japitos are not the only pretenders to the throne. And they have changed the way that the Sinaloa cartel does business. It was always about flooding America with white, with green. Now you add to that fentanyl, you add to that other types of synthetic drugs that are larger earners today for the, for the Chapitos than, than white. But it has become ruthless. It has become a cutthroat business conglomerate. The Sinaloa cartel still makes money from, from, from white and from, uh, from fentanyl and from synthetic drugs, but they make money from migrant trafficking. They make money from uh, illegal fishing, from illegal mining. Um, they don't do extortion. That's not their, their, their modus operandi, but they have essentially diversified as the demand for white has dropped in the United States over the last decade and has increased in parts of the world that the Sinaloa cartel is not in a position to, to be the main providers for, they have very skillfully adapted. And organized crime is the most adaptable uh, business in the world. They will always find um, new ways. So right now, 
fighting the Sinaloa cartel is more difficult than ever before. Because whereas before you had one identifiable leader and a couple of criminal economies, now you have leaders that are much more in retreat. We don't, for all the, for all the discussion about the Chapitos, we still don't know much about them. We still don't know much about what individual role they each play in, in, the, in the cartel. And I've spent a lot of time and spoken to a lot of people trying to figure this out. Um, so the kingpins, so to speak, are in retreat. Not in retreat, sorry. They're, they're, you know, they're protecting themselves. They're more invisible. They're more distanced from the business. While at the same time, being all over social media. The Chapitos are PR masters. They have this hashtag called La Chapisa, where they show, you know, their, their lifestyle. It's not them. Chapito sons, uh, El Chapo sons don't appear, but their gunmen are toting, you know, driving luxury cars, money, girls, weapons, um, and that is a powerful, attracting tool. So they've essentially walled themselves off from being directly targeted, the only exception being Ovidio, twice in the last four years, the only exception. The others have never come close to, uh, to being found uh, in, 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 in the last few years, while at the same time coming up with very attractive new ways of recruiting uh, new members. It's, it's a form of soft power. Um, so it's a very different beast to, to what it was under El Trump. Toby, what's the latest with Otoniel? You might, might explain who Otoniel is. Yeah, so Otoniel was the head of the um, the largest kind of criminal organization in Colombia, the largest. I mean, cartel doesn't even do justice to the Gulf clan uh, because it's involved in so many other things, extortion, illegal gold mining. Um, it was this just criminal organization that's tentacles stretched across the country. Its home base was the northwest of the country, uh, involved in migrant uh, trafficking as well, transporting. Um, and so he was captured in this huge operation. And at the time, the Colombian president said this was the biggest um, this was the biggest uh, blow to the illegal drugs industry since the capture of Pablo Escobar. And now he was extradited to the United States. Well, sorry, let me say something before that, because I think this is important. He was actually put in front of the country's Truth Commission and started to talk about how many people his organization was working with, i.e. bribing. These were uh, politicians, these were uh, members of the army, members of the police, if I'm not wrong. And I think the number was he got to 63 people. And then he was extradited away to the United States to serve, to stand trial, um, to stand trial for cocaine trafficking. So recently, in the last week or so, he's declared guilty, which is rare in these cases, I find, because normally um, the head of the cartels, they don't have, for an American court, they don't have anyone to roll over on. You know, that's the problem El Chapel had. had. He gets to, you're the top. I mean, what, what are you going to do? You're going to give up your, your employees? No, it doesn't work that way. So they usually just try to fight it out a trial anyway, because they have no chance. Otoniel pled guilty. And I wonder if that's because he's hoping he may have some life left over after serving that sentence. So he's 51 years old. I believe the minimum is 20 years. I think the judge said the minimum could be 20 years. And then in a press statement by the Department of Justice, they said it could be life imprisonment. I think that might be wrong, though, because my understanding is the Colombians will not allow you to be extradited if you can face a punishment 
that their constitution does not allow. So you can't be extradited from Colombia to face uh, ex uh, execution if you're a Colombian citizen, I believe. And I don't believe in the Colombian constitution that life imprisonment exists. I believe it taps out at 60 years, but I could be wrong on that. But anyway, he's, he's 51, so the th thought is possibly him thinking, I'll get out uh, when I'm uh, 71, I guess, if he hopes. But I do want to go back to that idea. A US courtroom does not care about the people Otoniel corrupted in back in Colombia. And I think this was the tragedy of the extradition of Otoniel. If he had stayed in Colombia and was prepared to keep testifying, we could get to the root of this entire criminal underworld because over the years, I've become much, much more interested in the people who exist in the legal world to facilitate the illegal business. I think, let's just take the uh, that, pres that Colombian president at his word. This was the biggest blow since Pablo Escobar. Great. What's changed? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Has one pub in London said, oh, a bit slow tonight? No, of course not. We know the answer to it. We know. Has one person said, man, I was going to get high, but, you know, they captured Otoniel. No, I'm out of luck. No, of course not. We know there's as much out there as possible. And this is the frustrating thing. Again, the answer to the war on drugs by the people who are invested in this, this is the police, this is the DEA, D Drug Enforcement Agency, the CIA. Their answer to whenever we ask about the failures of the war on drugs, they always reply with the same thing. Give us just a little bit more on a little bit more war on drugs and we can win this war on drugs. We're not going anywhere in this. We capture the capos, nothing changes. So back to the thing on Otoniel, I think it's a tragedy. He was extradited. He could have revealed so much information about the police, army, the ports people who he um, oversaw their corruption. And that could have really started taking down things. But again, he's in America. That American courtroom doesn't care about any of that. They just want to know, you know, how he sent the cocaine to the United States. They're not investigating the corruption. And he'll presumably spend at least 20, 30 years in prison. Um, and I mean, one final thing I do want to say about this. These men, when you see them in the cold light of day, are rarely particularly impressive. Otoniel is not an impressive man. He's not. But he operates in a black market. He's ruthless, he's violent, and he's merciless. The idea that this man could have run Coca-Cola or Mercedes-Benz is a myth that the narcos themselves like to say. It's nonsense. It's the black market looks for those qualities. Be violent and don't show any mercy. Now you're going places in the black market. But you see Otoniel, the guy can barely read. I mean, he, he reads things out and he stumbles over basic words. When I saw El Chapo as well, the same thing. So I'm very, I'm very cautious about this myth that the narcos themselves tell. And just sorry, one final point. Back to what we were talking about, um, the people who want the war on drugs to keep going. Nobody wants the war on drugs more than these drug traffickers because their entire business is tied up in this being illegal so they can make the mega profits. The day this is all legal, these guys are standing on street corners trying to sell you something. They've got nothing in the legal world. Yeah, good point about Otoniel and his violence, because not only has drug laws made these worthless plants more valuable than gold, there's an economic incentive for the most violent mafias to dominate the market. I mean, the old school mafia guys I spoke to, they didn't harm women or kids.
and now the cartels they'll come along you know torture your entire family and put it online but but going going back to that then chris so this split within the sinaloa cartel has that enabled rival cartels to gain in power such as jalisco new generation there is a trend in any country that the largest cartels will eventually fragment it's happening with the golf clan post otoñal it's happening with the sinaloa cartel the jalisco cartel has been more resilient to that fragmentation and they've certainly because they're hyper aggressive they take risks they take risks to take new territory which is something that a lot of the localized territory-based groups in mexico don't do the 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 cartel the jalisco cartel could be compared to like the golden horde of genghis khan where they will announce all of a sudden in one week we are taking 17 towns in Zacatecas, as happened early on in the pandemic. 17 banners went up in 17 towns saying, we're taking over next week. And they did. And if they found any uh, sort of resistance, it was the most violent uh, exaggerations that we've seen in Mexico, right? in body bags on the street. Even with the adaptation of a similar cartel, that's not how a similar cartel does in business. They'll be perfectly happy to kill whoever they need to kill, but they're not showy about it. The Jalisco cartel are ruthless in the Otoniel way. Of they want you to see what, what the cost is of, of standing up to them. We've seen it in Michoacán. We've seen it in Cancun. We've seen it in uh, Veracruz, the, the, the parts of Mexico where the Jalisco cartel has had to fight to really dominate and push out, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, the, the local competition. There's always this, this debate about who's more powerful, Sinaloa or Jalisco. I think that's a useless um, debate to be having. They're both extremely powerful. They're both supplying tons of drugs to the US uh, and, and killing thousands of people in, in Mexico. Where the Sinaloa cartel is strongest, so Baja California, Sinaloa, Chihuahua, with, with an alliance there with the, with the Salazar, the sort of the, 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 the home base of the Sinaloa cartel, the Jalisco cartel has not been able to push into that, to those areas. So the Sinaloa cartel controls major ports of entry and crossing points into the U.S. and will continue to do so, no matter which one of the factions comes out on top. The Jalisco cartel's uh, dominance is much more fluid. Is much more fluid. They control vast areas of, of the country, but rarely are they the only power in, in the area. Their power comes more from, from, uh, from breadth than depth, um, let's say. So certainly any any weakness within Sinaloa is beneficial to them, but it's not a one-to-one, you know, Sinaloa loses, Jalisco wins. Okay, Toby, going back to Tony L then, uh, it seems to me that these kingpins are sacrificial lambs. And if you look at the amount of bribery they're doing each month, all this money going to heads of politics, heads of military, heads of police it seems that the kingpins they're expendable they all this bribery flows then to to submit to the war on drugs they've got to sacrifice someone so the very people they're giving all this bribery to sacrifice the kingpin liquidate the kingpin send the kingpin to america in the meanwhile the billions that's been transferred over as the bribery to the heads of the politicians and the police and the military that money stays with them, and then someone else just comes in 
to replace that kingpin. Do you think that is one of the things that's keeping this system in place? I mean, Colombia is an interesting thing. It's hard to know how high. I think it's an interesting point of comparison, Colombia and Mexico, because Mexico is having this very high profile trial of this former security head in America. Again, it's not a trial I'm particularly following. But in Colombia, I don't know if the head of the army or the head of the police is receiving these uh, bribes, but certainly we do know that parts of the police, parts of the army, certainly have in the past at least, received bribe from drug traffickers. We know some politicians have been involved with them. I think that is the legal framework it's these actors in the legal world that do allow the illegal trade to flourish. And again, this goes back to this idea of when you speak to these drug traffickers, a term that I hear them use a lot is bandit. Yo soy un bandido. I'm a bandit. They love this idea. And in Latin America, it has a special resonance because the bandit is the honest man or woman, but usually a man who is so honest, he cannot live in a corrupted society. So it's more noble to actually go and live as an outlaw with your own set of honor rather than participate in a corrupted society. So they love to play this role. I'm a bandit, right? But it's all nonsense. They cannot, you, you're not passing tons and tons and tons of cocaine of white through the largest ports in Colombia without paying off people. It doesn't work. You need those people in the legal world to help you facilitate. And so whether it be, uh, whether it be um, you know, uh, yeah, paying off a police person to look the other way for five seconds just as your thing goes past, that it's all tied up in this. So, yeah, I do think I would be, I'm, as I say, I'm much more interested in looking at those people moving forward because I do wonder if you take down in a port the person who's letting a lot of that, that white go out, that actually could have an impact. That could slow down the outflow, possibly. But when you're talking about replacing the capos, yeah, they're replaceable. He was captured, I think it was two days later. We knew the names of at least two of his possible successors. I mean, it, it takes that little time. But again, I do want to get back to this idea of the corruption with all of this money swirling around Europe. I want everybody in Europe and the United States to be ultra careful about what could be coming down the line. Because Colombia saw large parts of its institutions corrupted by the money that comes from white. That could easily happen in Europe. How do we know that people in Britain who are manning those ports, what, they don't have money trouble? You see, all it needs is the same thing. They're, they're better than people in Colombia? Of course not. They're trying to get by. They have money problems. They're greedy. You see, this is my fear. So all of these major mafias in places like London, if they start getting smart and start making approaches, just like they did in Colombia, they wait for the person who, who works in the port and they have their information out there and they wait for someone who falls into trouble. That's the way. People have told me this time and time again. One guy who used to operate the submarines that would carry three, four, five tons of white. He used to be like a junior person on this. He said, I was out in the uh, the party scene on the coast. I got into trouble. I got a bit too much into drugs myself. I got debts. And someone said, hey, I've got a friend who might be able to help you with those debts. They get you when you're at your weakest. So some, work, some guy working at a UK port, you see Rotterdam, you see the potential for this. 
What happens if they start corrupting our police force? This, this is what worries me about these billions of profits in Europe, that if you start to get that venom in the bloodstream of corruption, it's very, very difficult to break that. It becomes almost irreversible. I mean, you can sort of tap it, but once that culture becomes sort of accepted, normalized in some way, it's very, very difficult to come back from that. Yeah, we interviewed a guy called Andrew Pritchard here in the UK. It was involved in a hundred million conspiracy of the white. And he had a whole customs team paid off to bring it into this country. But when I, I was talking about the top of politics, I've, you know, we've also interviewed um, the son of the Cali cartel. We published his book as well, William Rodriguez. Mm. And he, you know, the, the, the Cali cartel were boasting they paid 10 million to put a president in power. And then you got the president in Mexico who retired to Ireland with half a, half a billion, was it, <laughs> in his bank account. So it seems that the money does flow to some members at the tops of, of those various departments. But we've, we've only got about 10 minutes left. So over to you, Chris. Um, who is Gennaro Garcia Luna? Gennaro Garcia Luna is the former uh, Mexican security minister. And he is widely seen as the architect in Mexico of the war on drugs. So he was the front man for under the presidency of Calderon when the military was deployed to fight the cartels head on. He was the man in charge of implementing that strategy on the ground. The theory is, from the prosecutors, that the entire time he was in the pocket of the Sinaloa cartel and that he was under instructions and received very generous bribes to facilitate El Chapo's rise to power, cocaine coming out of, of uh, the white coming out of the Sinaloa cartel, and to take down the rivals of El Chapo. That is the prevailing theory. It's certainly very, very, very credible and very, very, very likely. His trial is currently ongoing in New York, and the prosecution is making a hash of it. Um, he pled not guilty. And very, I mean, it's his, it's his lawyer's jobs, right, to, to, be, to defend him, but very confident statements from his lawyers that this was not going to stand up. The prosecutors promised reams of evidence and all these you know smoking guns well none of it's come out the evidence presented to the court is weak it's circumstantial it's you know witness accounts saying they heard that he was connected to el chapo but they heard in a meeting that someone mentioned garcia luna as someone to protect um the the cia had a, a board game the cia made this this homemade board game with mexican criminal figures um in the in the early 2000s and he was in, he was part of that board game. he was mentioned as a financier so it's very likely the guy was was involved but the trial is not proving that particularly well the prosecution is also going to rest its case next week it was expected to go for another three weeks so it shows you that this is not going particularly well that doesn't mean he's not going to be convicted the u.s plenty of times has convicted people on flimsier allegations of flimsy evidence than expected um but all this hype before the trial that he was going to blow the lid on the relationships between the cartels and the highest rungs of power in mexico have so far not turned out to be true i, I just want to make a point in, in reference to what uh, Toby was saying about colombia and, and, and mexico and, and the highest echelons of power there's a country we haven't discussed which is venezuela venezuela is a crucial link 
in the cocaine trade. Um, the Maduro government is not even covertly complicit in regulating the cocaine trade through the country. They have made alliances with criminals and backstabbed them when it was convenient for them. Um, and there is now growing coca presence in parts of Venezuela. Nowhere near enough to be a fourth cocaine producer, but it's growing exponentially. But stay with and white. Stay with <laughs> it's the, the, the cultivation of white in Venezuela, to a lesser extent in Guatemala and Honduras, is not indicative that there will be new producer countries, but it's indicative that people are it's indicative that people are looking at what's happening in, in Colombia, looking at what's happening in Peru, even though record production of white is happening and thinking, hey, we don't need to be the middlemen anymore. There is a chance of, of going into business for ourselves. And there, it's not that they're corrupting the people at the port. It's the government is actively complicit in the drug trade of a major South American country and very close to the existing sources of white. And that's terrifying. And we've got a couple of questions coming from viewers. We've got about five minutes left, viewers. If you do have any questions for Chris or Toby, just put them in the live chat right now. We'll see if we can get some quick fire answers to these. So psychedelic fish, has the demand for white in USA decreased because of F and increased in Europe because of the East European gangs? What do you think, Toby? Uh, yeah, I don't really follow the uh, the demand so much in the consumer country. I'm more kind of focused on the production. I will say though that I do think I do think it's making a lot of people in America think twice. Certainly in America where I live, um, I think that that presence of F I think is freaking people out. The Wall Street Journal did a great story about two months ago. I think it was about how this dealer in New York City had a batch of white, but it had been contaminated by F, and just like three or four of his clients die in one night. He didn't know. And you have this haunting text messages. He gets a hint from one person that F might be in there and he sends a text message to someone he's just sold the white to. Be careful. This is stronger than normal. I think by that point, the person was already dead. They had snorted. I mean, so it's this haunting story. And I think people are. I mean, it's going to be wild if the if the presence of this kind of F is the thing that actually decreases the consumption of white, uh, you know, something had to, I guess. Why would they put F in the white if it is going to decrease the consumption? I, I think it's just, I, again, I'm speculating again. I'd love to hear what Chris says on this. I think it's, I think the F is cheaper than the white. So they kind of, it's a way of cutting it up and it definitely gives you some sort of effect, but uh, I don't know. Maybe Chris can shine more light on this. Yeah, please, please expand on that, Chris. Uh, just in terms of the of the demand, I, I wouldn't say it's one for one, um, but certainly the cheapness of F and the hit you get from it um, accounts for for much of the of the demand now in the U.S. And the statistics are are horrifying. Uh, you know, hundred thousand plus in the U.S. every year, and sixty to seventy percent of that is uh, pretty confirmed to be to be from uh, from F. We have to be very careful when we talk about mixing drugs. There is no evidence beyond isolated cases that white and F have been intentionally mixed hmm. because I, I know people advice have been working on this a lot. We've looked at it as well. It doesn't make any economic sense. It doesn't enhance the high. It doesn't make the, the drugs cheaper. Um, what they think it is, is significant accidental cross-contamination where, you know, the drugs are being mixed on the same surface and, you know, 
bits of white and, and, and Afghan mixed together. Also, as soon as you talk about synthetic drugs, you're talking about significant cutting and mixing different molecules, different ways of doing it. So that opens the door to, to cross-contamination. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but a lot of people have looked into this and said, it doesn't make sense for the moment. Um, but for the US, F is a national security crisis. It's killing tens of thousands of Americans every single year, and it's not in Europe because the demand for F and the accessibility to it is simply not there at the moment. European governments should pray it remains that way because if the if the F crisis comes to Europe, it, it's a whole different world. Grant wants to know whether Russia is involved in the white trade. Um, so the way that we uh, understand it is that um, when the white arrives in ports, uh, such as in the Netherlands or Belgium or Italy, um, other, the, 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 the gangs in these countries or the Drangheta or the, or the, the mafia in, in the Netherlands, then act as brokers and pass the drugs over to the Albanians, the Serbians, the Montenegrins, the Russian uh, Bratva. Um, so Russia's involvement in terms of being in Latin America and sourcing white directly, we haven't seen that. Um, there was a question earlier about the Albanians. They're very present in Ecuador, particularly. They have brokers in uh, Latin America making drug deals, just like the Sinaloa cartel, just like the Jalisco cartel. They they do their own business there. Um, then in Europe, is some is some white going to Russia? Absolutely, and they make a killing off it. It's it's you know, sky high prices. I, I'm I'm not aware how the war in Ukraine may have changed that and the access to that. That I'm I'm not on top of. Right, we have run out of time, guys. Huge thank you. I've learned so much today, and thanks for all the questions, viewers. Toby, first, could you just tell the viewers where they can find you and support your work? Uh, I'm on social media, on Twitter, at Toby Muse, and uh, yeah, I wrote the book, Kilo. Uh, if you want to learn more about the cocaine trade, it's a, it's a nice place to start. And thank you, Sean, for inviting me on, and great speaking to you, Chris. Yeah, it's such an important subject. And Chris, where can the viewers find and support you, please? Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm the managing editor of Inside Crime. You can find us at insightcrime.org. I'm on Twitter at, at Chris Dolby IC. Um, and we publish you know, monthly investigations, deep dives into all facets of organized crime beyond cocaine. You know, we look at migrant trafficking. We look at the environmental crime. Um, so, yeah, if, if you enjoy, like us, the, the learning about the diversity of organized crime, we've got something for you. All right. We salute the work that you're doing, fellas. Take care. Thank you very much. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks, all guys. Right. Right. You know, there's been a lot of people have said that legalization, decriminalization is the only way. Prohibition doesn't work, especially alcohol prohibition proved it doesn't work. But one in the chat, if you are for an end to the war on drugs, put a two in the chat if you want the war on drugs to keep going. Very curious as to what you guys are going to say. Going to bring in my co-host Stephen Knight. Good evening. Pick up the next debate. Thanks for rejoining us, Stephen. My pleasure. Looking forward to the chat. Looks like it's all ones coming in on the war on drugs. I'm going to get going and hand it over to you. So cheers, brother. Speak to you soon. Andrew, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. Very nice to, to be with you tonight. 
you too. Lots to discuss. Um, some mixed opinions on the, the uh, Royals in our in our audience and chat, I would imagine. Graham, thanks for joining us. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for asking. So we'll be talking about the monarchy and what future that may or may not have uh, in Britain. Um, before we get into that, maybe, Andrew, you could tell us a little bit about your background. How, how would you describe what you do? Well, I'm a literary agent. I actually represent Graham uh, for a book he's doing, but I also write books uh, on the royal family. Uh, my two most recent books are on the Mountbatten's and on Edward VIII, both of them quite critical. Uh, in one, I accused uh, Dickie Mountbatten of being a paedophile, and the second, I accused uh, the Duke of Windsor of being a Nazi stooge. Uh, and I'm now doing a book on Prince Andrew. Ah, yeah. I wonder where that will end. What, what the conclusions there, I imagine, will be Who interesting. <laughs> Who knows? Graham, uh, would you like to describe to us uh, what, what it is you do? Yeah, I, I, I'm uh, CEO of Republic, which is a campaign organisation, um, does what it says on the tin. Our uh, aim is to achieve the abolition of the monarchy. And uh, as Andrew just uh, alluded to, I've uh, just got a book in the works this has come out for pre-order so uh, which is called abolish the monarchy which um essentially makes the case uh for how we why we should do that how we do it and what we get at the end of it does this book uh deal with any of the the arguments for the monarchy a lot of the things we hear such as you know the tourism trade uh our, our standing in the world those sorts of things absolutely yeah i mean it pretty much starts with a lot of that stuff saying that you know all of these arguments don't really stack up um, and then it gets into some of the more serious stuff about the, the position of the crown in the constitution um, and and the fact that there's a really simple democratic alternative on offer. So Graham clearly there representing hardcore republicanism for us today. Andrew, where do you sit? Do you, do you sit on the fence? Are you neutral? Are you, are you pro-monarchy? Where are you? Well, I've read Graham's book. I find it very persuasive. I mean, I'm a monarchist, um, but I want the monarchy to behave better than they do sometimes. And I think there are a number of rogue royals generally the ones I write about, who I think let the side down. Um, but I'm becoming more and more ambivalent about it, having been uh, not a fervent monarchist, but in a sense an accepting monarchist. So we've got we've got uh, abolition versus reform. Then it, it seems here. I think I think I, I'm I'm for my sort of staunch lefty liberal principles. I've always been a Republican. I I, I find it strange to be honest. It's all silly hats weird cultish like practices dogmas it, it mimics too much like a sort of hardcore religion to me i think i think that's the issue i have obviously then you strain to the fact that it's undemocratic it's hereditary power uh, things like that however as i've got a little bit older i've become slightly more affectionate towards the idea of a monarchy i don't know if there's some some comfort in tradition perhaps graham how could we sort of um replace the tradition of the monarchy uh, and the, the amount of meaning that provides for so many people across the world uh, if we were to abolish it? Well, I think most people are fairly ambivalent about it. I think if you look at polling um, around the Jubilee last year and around other big events, it's you know, something in the region of 15 to 20% who are enthusiastic and want to celebrate the, these big uh, royal events. So, you know, we shouldn't um, put too much store in how other people feel about it. In terms of, you know, what we do instead, we only have to look across the Irish Sea. We have to, you know, Ireland, Iceland, Germany, Finland, you know, all these countries. Um, most of countries in Europe have uh, democratic uh, elected heads of state, whether directly or indirectly. Um, and, and it works really well. And not only do, do the institutions work well, but they also get to choose some pretty uh, excellent and inspirational 
um, president. So, you know, I think one of the things that has probably struck a lot of people more recently is that they aren't as um, dignified and respectful and all the rest of it as people might think. There's a lot of criticism about them individually, obviously um, Prince Andrew being the obvious one. And I think that in a free and fair election, we would not elect Charles, um, and yet there he is. I think that is a fundamental problem in a democratic society. Sure. So, Andrew, I mean, do the royals have a problem here in terms of the fact they now live in this, you know, ultra-connected, socially network-obsessed celebrity culture now? It seems like it's very difficult for them to sort of remain outside of the public eye if they want to remain relevant. You know, the public are interested more than ever in the private lives of these people. Yeah, I think in order for the monarchy to function, it has to sort of remain almost mysterious in a way. Can they survive in their current form in this this new climate of just constant interest in people's lives well i think it is difficult because as you say there has to be a mystique about them but at the same time they have to appear uh, approachable i think some royals do manage that i think kate and william uh, have managed that um, but it is uh, i think clearly a moment uh, as the queen die dies and we we go move into a new reign uh, that people are going to expect less i mean the monarchy i think does, does could have a role as uh, as a sort of unifier for the nation in terms of its charitable role. But, uh, you know, the behavior of a number of the individuals, the fact that they've, in a sense, broken their own privacy, which makes any of the rules that we have now about uh, not being able to see, for example, historical documents relating to the royals, makes a farce of that. So there's got to be reform. They've got to be more open and more transparent. Uh, and I think they've got to behave better. And I think there's always been this trope which the Crown does very well, between public duty and private pleasure. And there's been a bit too much private pleasure recently uh, and not enough public duty. Graham, I, th I think I'd just ask you as well. So I suppose um, in terms of tradition and the, the public national psyche, perhaps, I think during lockdown, there, there was this moment where the Queen gave her, her speech. I think she quoted Vera Lynn at the time, and that became quite emblematic of this coming together during tough times, this almost warlike mentality. And it did seem to lift a fair number of people. Me personally, someone who's not a monarchist, who's also Republican, found it quite moving, this, this idea that we all share this one national identity during difficult times. And I don't necessarily think that's uh, an essential thing, like it must come from uh, the Queen or the head of state or whatever. But if we didn't have that, what possibly could replace that in terms of a national unifier, if you even think we need a national unifier? Well, I, I don't buy the premise, really. I mean, I don't think that the Queen's speech during the uh, um, lockdown made a significant impact. I think that most people forgot about it fairly quickly. Um, the fact that we, the only thing we can really remember are the words that she quoted from someone else. Um, <laughs> and it was incredibly brief. But I think that, you know, the idea that uh, you're talking about sort of national unity and national identity or, or some kind of unifying factor. You know, if you look at Ireland, you look at uh, Iceland and Germany and all these republics, you know, the notion that they aren't somehow, you know, don't have some kind of united um, sense of their, their selves, their identity, their, their, their national identity, you know, is clearly untrue. You know, so you can, we are united by, you know, common language, common experiences, common culture. Um, and whoever we have as head of state should be able to reflect that and, uh, and communicate that. Pre uh, President Michael D. Higgins of Ireland uh, did that very well and very eloquently, um, as I'm sure other heads of state did around the world. 
So um, I don't think that that is a serious um, consideration. Whatever we do as a country, um, I think that we can uh, pull together at times of tragedy and celebration. The thing about electing someone, of course, is that when the people of Ireland, for example, I go back to, you know, there are other examples, but I go back to, the, to Ireland again, um, is that when they were watching and listening uh, to their head of state, this was someone who was just a regular person who had been chosen by them to serve that position. And so, to my mind, that is more unifying and more inspirational uh, than someone who got the job for no reason than her, her father had it before, and really got the job because her uncle was um, suspected Nazi sympathiser. Um, and I don't think that is uh, an inspiration. Well, I, I mean, that's it's a good point about, you know, democracy, of course. But I suppose in, in that sense, I mean, we we elected Boris Johnson and it feels very unlikely he would have had a better effect at that job than the Queen did in terms of the national response to it. Um, Prime Minister is very different to elected heads of state uh, in parliamentary democracies. You know, you can elect someone who can be that um, sort of unifying figure who is apart from and, uh, and above the party political fray. Prime Ministers are immediately compromised the moment they become Prime Minister because they have to make decisions which is going to divide opinion. Um, and of course, you know, Boris Johnson is just one of many Prime Ministers we've had and he's uh, particularly um, divisive figure. Um, you know, it's not about uh, picking between him and the Queen. It's about saying we can choose people as they do in other places uh, who can be just as inspirational. I mean, if you look at um, there are two other uh, people from uh, both from the 80s, actually. The president of uh, Iceland, uh, Vigdis Finnbogadottir, was the first woman ever elected to be head of state in the world. Uh, the president of Iceland from 1980 to 1996, hugely um, popular, uh, widely respected, and being the first woman, um, obviously in Iceland as well, she had a huge impact on uh, gender equality and on um, a whole range of debates that she took up. And uh, Richard von Weizsäcker of Germany uh, made a um, profound and important speech in the mid 80s, which fundamentally uh, sort of changed the way Germans look at their uh, their past in, in relation to Nazi Germany and, you know, really opened up that debate and got people to think about it and to think about who, you know, the difference between the, the guilt of the, um, uh, the generations that were alive at the time and, uh, you know, how younger generations dealt with it later. Uh, so, you know, these people can make a huge and profound impact um, without being political. Okay. I mean, Andrew, do you give much thought to this idea of a national identity and, uh, uh, you know, a national psyche and, and how much the royals play a part of that? Well, I mean, I think the fact that, they, you know, they are popular. I think, they're, you know, people want them to go and open things. They clearly have, you know, extensive charitable interest. People want them to be patron, and that makes a huge difference if there's a royal patron. And I think there's also a foreign um, policy element, that there's a soft power there that often they can deploy remember the royal family in a way they couldn't perhaps a political figure and and also i think that there's, there's just a sheer continuity of the rule the queen was there for 70 years and was probably the best informed political figure in britain uh, and she was able to do things that perhaps you know politicians or even a president couldn't do however distinguished they were so i mean i think we've got the system as it is uh, i think the interesting question is is what will happen in this period around the coronation will 
this be a bringing together of the nation as we saw when the queen died? Um, or will there be uh, people beginning to, to, to say, is this in the 21st century the sort of way we want to go? Um, can you think of perhaps anything the royals do offer uniquely that's like somebody that was elected or uh, another figurehead that wasn't monarchy uh, couldn't bring to the table? I think that's maybe the first of Graham's point that we could do all this without the monarchy and the monarchy is not essential. Well, as I was saying, the soft power of foreign policy. I mean, the fact that the Queen had been there for so long, uh, that she was way above the, the, the political fray uh, and was a wise old bird. You know, she was used at times to 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 to, to help uh, policy and, and Prince Philip as well. But I think the problem with monarchy, you know, one of its strengths and weaknesses is it relies on the individuals who inherit. Uh, and there are clearly going to be some who are better than others. But one would hope that there, there would be this strong sense of noblesse oblige that they could uh, feel, as I say, that they, they they spoke for the whole nation. And, you know, I know Graham will say, well, you know, a president can do that. But uh, because of their position, they are completely unique and it's different. Graham, maybe you'd want to speak to the soft power in terms of uh, issues of foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've heard this said before. I don't really buy it. And I, I think that, you know, the Queen was on the throne for a long time, but you know you can really only argue that that was a benefit after a point at which you can say that she was on there for a long time. I mean, you know, she what benefit was she when she first became Queen? She was in her twenties. She hadn't had a formal education. She had uh, a fairly limited sort of um, exposure to the real world. How helpful was she going to be to Churchill or to Eden or to Macmillan? Um, I, I so yeah, no, I don't really buy that. I think that having someone who has experience, who has had a career, um, whether in diplomacy or law or politics or whatever, uh, being head of state is going to be far more useful and effective. And if you look at some of the other royals, um, then in recent years they they have shown themselves to be absolutely dreadful ambassadors. I mean, William and Kate's Caribbean tour last year followed by Edward and Sophie. I mean, it was uh, rather embarrassing and, uh, and you know, embarrassing for the country, really, the way in which they um, failed to represent us well and to respond to all the various arguments around colonialism and reparations and so on. And of course, Prince Andrew was um, an ambassador for, for the UK in trade um, for quite a long time and was criticised for his behaviour and, uh, and then, of course, um, brought uh, our, uh, or dragged our reputation through the mud with his um, uh, various scandals around uh, Virginia Jiffer and uh, Epstein. So, um, you know, I just don't think that they add much that we couldn't get from uh, from better qualified people. I mean, what I would say about the Caribbean tour is, I mean, that was, you know, that was up to the Foreign Office to brief people to set up the tour. I don't think you can blame the, the principals for that. You know, they were there uh, and and had a set itinerary that was set for them. They didn't make up uh, the, the 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 program. Andrew, just uh, explain the uh, the faux pas of that visit for us for people who don't know. Well, the faux pas I think was that it it, it seemed like it was this sort of colonial th spirit. People they were driving, well, standing around in in Land Rovers. There was a, there was a, a moment where it seemed to me there were school children behind a fence, though in fact they were able to walk around it. But it looked very patronising and very old fashioned. Uh, but I, I don't think you can blame the, 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 the you know, William and Kate. I mean, the, the problem was that the Foreign Office should have been better briefed. Uh, and I think also some of the publicity for it was, was, was not entirely fair. Um, the fence is a good example where it was very easy to sh 
to, to show that they, the tube was separated by a fence and then to find that actually it, was, it wasn't quite that, uh, as, as easy as that. So, but Graham, I think, I, sorry, go ahead. I, I think it's difficult to say that they are you know, good ambassadors and good for our soft power and then say that they're not responsible for, their, for the way that they conduct the tour. Yes, of course, the Foreign Office uh, organised things, but you know, if William is a good ambassador, he should spot these pitfalls um, and at least uh, respond to them and avoid them uh, after that. I mean, he, he was well aware that he was going to be standing in a, uh, um, a, a Land Rover in, a, in an outfit that uh, you know, conjured up images of empire. Um, and he put that outfit on and stood, you know, got in the back of that Land Rover without any concern for what it might look like. Um, and it, uh, Edward and Sophie was even more embarrassing because they just didn't really engage, weren't particularly interested in what was being said to them um, when prime ministers were directly addressing very serious concerns. But I, I you know this is not a huge point. I think the, the the bigger point is in terms of the way the monarchy works in the UK. I think that you know we're quite capable as one of the largest economies in the world uh, of you know generating um, goodwill and, and pushing out. Uh, uh, you know, promoting our economy and our industry and trade and whatever around the world without the royal family. I think we're quite uh, absolutely uh, capable of doing that. But I think there's uh, bigger issues um, in well, the I UK. One of the great successes of the Queen's reign was the Commonwealth, after all, that, you know, that, that, that the empire did evolve into something else, uh, which was a force for good. Uh, you know, so I think that the, the royals can be figures that bring people together in a way that, you know, a single president and, and wouldn't be able to do. Um, I think the, the debate is, is 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 more evenly balanced, perhaps, than 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 you might suggest. I mean, I, I've just finished reading an excellent book by Philip Murphy, a professor of, um, uh, uh, from the um, Commonwealth uh, Institute, I think it's called, um, called Empire's New Clothes. And I mean, if you do a, a thorough look at the Commonwealth, it doesn't really do an awful lot um, that has any significant impact on the world. Um, there's not really an awful lot there to it. It's a, it's a fairly um, feeble, uh, under-resourced uh, organisation. And I'd say that the Queen wasn't really responsible for it. She didn't uh, come up with it. Her dad didn't come up with it. No, it was a, it was a, a, a result of you know, Britain trying to salvage something from the collapsing empire. Um, and it has some benefit, uh, which is why it's still there. But um, it doesn't really... Uh, do an awful lot, and it would still be there whether we had the monarchy or not. You know, it doesn't it doesn't hinge upon them. Um, it uh, it is a result of government action or inaction. But I mean, Charles is is still the head of the Commonwealth. I mean, that would have been a very obvious moment when uh, the Queen was passing passing on um, to 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 change it, and they didn't want to change it. They seemed happy to have a, a, mon a British monarch uh, who's head of it. Indeed, but, but in, in a way, that's because this doesn't really matter. <laughs> They've got better things to worry about. I mean, more than something like 96% of the population of the Commonwealth do not have Charles as their monarch, as their head of state. You know, it, it's a, and 75% of countries within the Commonwealth do not have um, our monarch as their head of state. So, you know, the vast majority of Commonwealth countries and citizens um, are in republics. Um, but, you know, the Commonwealth now compromises its... Um, claim to uh, its uh, sort of you know, high-minded values by, for example, allowing Sri Lanka to host the Chogham when they were um, uh, accused of serious human rights abuses. And now they've allowed the admittance of uh, Gabon and Togo um, uh, into the Commonwealth when they are also you know, 
uh, not democracies and uh, face serious criticisms of human rights. So it's, um, yeah, I don't think the Commonwealth is something to get excited about. This is a very civil English disagreement, isn't it? <laughs> um, Andrew, I suppose something that really interests me. I mean, I, as a Republican, I've still got a you know a fondness for the late Queen, and there's a stoicism about her, a, a dignity. Uh, it was very difficult to pin her down on items of you know politics. She seemed almost neutral in that sense. Uh, with Charles, can Charles? That's not the case, is it? We've got a, a lot of history, a lot of writing, a lot of comments. He, he seems very open about what he believes on certain topics. Is that going to be a problem for him? Do you think? Well, I mean, he says it's not going to be a problem, uh, and he's clearly got to, you know, behave uh, rather like his mother did. But um, as you, you know, she had no real preparation. Uh, we didn't really know much about it until she came to the throne. Whereas he's had, in effect, fifty fifty years of his adult life where we've been pretty clear about where he stands on things, you know. And we see it now with William. I mean, he's clearly taking on issues like the environment. Uh, and Charles, you know, for 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 all the criticisms, has been ahead of his time. He has championed things which we now believe are, are right, particularly to do with the environment. So, uh, you know, I think in some ways they can be a very useful focus to raise issues. Uh, and as long as it doesn't seem party political, I mean, these bigger issues like the environment, uh, I, I think, you know, very few people would, would, would argue that those are not issues of some concern uh, that need to be, to, to be highlighted. Graham, your thoughts on on Charles and his political leanings? I don't know if you ever read the late and great Christopher Hitchens on the royal family, but he absolutely detested uh, at the time Prince Charles, I believe, for his his political views and his political almost activism. Yeah, I mean his political views are not mainstream; they um, they can be quite um, uh, quite a long way from mainstream. Particularly, you know, he lobbied for. Um, homeopathy, for example, to be paid for on the NHS, which almost every doctor on the NHS thinks is a, is a nonsense. Um, and the the problem with uh, his, uh, I, I mean, I, firstly, I don't think that we shouldn't know what someone's politics is. I think we should know what someone's politics is, and we should know what they're doing behind closed doors. And then we can judge whether or not they're being impartial and doing the job properly. Uh, we didn't know what the Queen's politics were, and we also didn't know what she was doing behind closed doors. So we had no idea um, whether or not she was trying to influence things, although John Major said that um, admitted that she did seek to influence and was successful in on occasion. Um, with Charles, we have a pretty good idea of what his politics are, and we don't know what he's doing behind closed doors and cannot know. Um, the Freedom of Information Act does not allow us any access to what he's doing. So, for all we know, he is using his um, significant access and leverage to. Uh, persuade government to change policy on various things. Now, they can lobby for a uh, political agenda, and they can also lobby for their own private interests as well. Um, so they can have themselves, as they have done many times, exempted from a whole raft of views. Now, in terms of their politics, I would, I mean, I do think this, there's this idea that, you know, because we all sort of agree, or most people agree that, um, the environment is a serious issue that therefore it's not a partisan issue and therefore it's okay for them to wade into. The problem with that is that the environment is hugely political because the way in which we challenge or deal with climate change, um, you know, it carries an awful lot of cost uh, that people have to bear and who bears that cost? Now, the people that cause the most carbon emissions are the, the richest people in the country and the richest countries in the world. 
Um, but the cost is often borne by uh, poorer people and by um, by less powerful people. And Charles is a hypocrite on the environment. You know, he always flies around by helicopter and you know, um, uh, or, or by large jets and so on. And he has multiple huge homes which are always being heated and um, and lit, whether he's there or not. Um, so he has a huge carbon footprint. Um, he, you know, he will not support, for example. Um, uh, Extinction Rebellion's calls for a ban on private uh, helicopter flights because he enjoys those flights himself. So he's a hindrance. You know, he, he starts to direct the. He will influence the debate away from the from challenging the richest and largest carbon uh, pollute, uh, polluters um, because that's in his interest to do so. Um, and uh, you know, he flew from heli by helicopter across the country from Gloucestershire to Cambridge to lecture environmental scientists on the need to reduce the amount of carbon from uh, flights. So it's a bit of a mad um, situation to be in. So no, I don't I don't buy the idea that they are environmentalists. Same with William as well. I think he's uh, somewhat, something of a hypocrite as well. He uses helicopters all the time. Um, and as I said, it is a, a hugely political issue as to how we tackle uh, climate change and who bears the costs. I mean, where it's, I, I do agree with Graham is I think there does need to be more transparency, more transparency about their finances uh, and um, this freedom of exemption uh, uh, that they have for any communication with the royal family, particularly in historical documents. I think we may don't know if anyone else is experiencing a loss of sound from Andrew, but I think we may have just lost you for a moment, Andrew. Can you hear us okay? Uh, no, you've you appear to have turned into a cyborg, unfortunately. We're having some technical issues. I'm sorry about that. You have to read my lips or leave it Leave it to go. <laughs> Can you hear me? How's your signing? Um, yeah, uh, I think you may have come back in. Just say hello to us again, Andrew. Hello? Ah, I think you're back. If you wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind just starting from the top of that point, please. I think we missed almost all of it. Yeah, uh, I mean, what I would say is, if you're going to have a monarchy, then it, you have to have a certain amount of pomp. I mean, uh, this has been one of the debates with the coronation: how simplified it should be, and and, and um, you know, the, the royal family, of course, are hypocrites at times, uh, saying one thing and, and doing another. But you know, again, they're often matters of security. They're doing a lot of things in each day. They have to be able to move quickly between those events. So I think that one has to give them a little bit of a leeway uh, in the way they behave. I think they can still have the right, the right sentiments, even if, as Graham says, sometimes they don't um, do as they as they say. Graham, I think what's what's always fascinating me about this, and I suppose you got you got closer to the idea before when we were talking about the sort of wealth and luxury they enjoy, you know, and then swanning around in private helicopters whilst lecturing us about the environment. And and at the moment we we're facing a real, you know, cost of living crisis. I think the term or the expression rather being thrown around is choosing between heating or eating, and we, that's juxtaposed, uh, um, sorry, contrasted with you know literal crowns, palaces, exuberance, things like that. And what strikes me as particularly interesting about this is I, I'm I'm from a working class background in the north of England, and to me it would seem completely alien that a working class person would 
look up to the monarchy and, and think that's a valuable thing. But everywhere I look in my, you know, uh, part of the country, uh, the uh, working class Northwest, I see people who absolutely love the monarchy. I mean, this this is even something that extends to my own household. My, my fiance is an ardent monarchist. It causes many disagreements in our house. My, my brother... Um, most of my family and it just seems how how can we explain that kind of mentality where people who are um, working to make ends meet who are probably hit hardest by cost of living and and can't possibly comprehend the wealth and privileged um, kind of that that's involved with being part of the monarchy how can they then be for it in such a strong sense well I mean there's a there's a, a lot of, I think it's just the way it's presented all the time. I think that we are not really given a clear picture, um, an honest picture. Um, you know, we are told all these things about, you know, some people think that they are self-funded in some way, that um, it's all noble and, you know, um, regal and uh, something to be celebrated. Um, and, you know, this is drummed home a lot. Um, and... Uh, so I, I don't know that people, and I don't know that they're necessarily engaging with the detail of what the institution is, but it's part of, uh, for a lot of people, it's um, a part of their sense of identity of being British. So I think it's that. Um, I think the what I find is that when I engage with people in, in more depth, then people do change their mind and they start to think more critically of it. And they go, oh, OK, fair enough. That's not quite what I thought the monarchy was. Um, and I think we've seen this quite a few times where people suddenly think, hang on it, that's not the monarchy I thought we had. Um, we had it with, I think, this was what was happening when Diana died, is that you know, the reaction, the public reaction to the way in which they responded to the Queen's death, I think, was was not a Republican thing. It was just kind of a, hang on a minute, why aren't they being the people that we thought they were in responding to the death of Diana? And I think that same with things like um, the Oprah interview um, and Andrew and so on. People are kind of going, okay, this isn't the the institutional family that I thought it was. So, you know, people will change their minds, and for but for a lot of people, it is just a kind of a a gut feeling or an emotional attachment that is tied up with um, what they think being British is. But I would say that most people are not staunch monarchists. You know, staunch monarchists are um, very much in a minority. Um, probably fewer of them than there are staunch Republicans now, because you know people wanting to get rid of the monarchy is um, that number. Do we have any out. any um, clear polling data on these opinions, Graham, that you're aware of? Well, I mean, on the simple question of do you want to get rid of it, the support for um, keeping it has dropped from around seventy five percent down to as low as fifty five percent in some polling. Um, the highest polling for getting rid of it is up around thirty one percent, up from about twenty percent. Um, not that long ago. Um, the, there's a poll just now a couple of weeks ago saying, are you proud that we have a monarchy? And that number has dropped to 43%. So, uh, but off that, even off that 55 to 75, whatever the number is, who want to keep it, a substantial number of those people are just saying, look, I don't really mind that much, don't care that much, but, you know, on balance, I'd be happy to keep it. So they're not staunch monarchists necessarily as people who are just happy to carry on with the status quo. But if we look at all the polling around the two big weddings and the two jubilees over the last 12 years. Uh, oh, we appear to have just lost Graham's audio. Sorry, he's back, Graham. Um, the, yeah, the two weddings and two jubilees over the last 12 years, uh, two thirds to three quarters of people were not interested on every occasion. So... No, it's quite a, a divided um, uh, and, a, and a mixed picture, if you like, of how people feel about it. 
Um, the other thing it says is that on that, when they're sort of, you know, 25 to 30% saying get rid of it, there's also another 15% who are saying, I don't know whether we should get rid of it, which suggests that they clearly have reservations about the monarchy, but they haven't quite come down on the side of abolition. So there's, you know, it's getting quite high, that number of people who have concerns. What do you make of this polling data, Andrew? I mean, do you, would you be confident that the the monarchy could survive some sort of referendum? Well, I think, I mean, I, I, I haven't got access to the, to the data that perhaps the Graham has, but I would suspect that the younger uh, generation are less uh, inclined to support monarchy. And so gradually these figures will, will change. Uh, I, I don't get the sense that the, young, uh, the, the younger generations really feel that the monarchy speaks to them, and that must be a concern to, to Charles. And they, I mean, they've been very much pushing the sense of the, the family of the nation, several generations. It's not this gerontocracy with the Queen there in her nineties. You know, they're, they're they're actually bringing out to, to promote the firm. You know, Louis and 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 George and, and Charlotte. So the, there's a conscious effort to to make it feel that it appeals to a younger a younger group, uh, and clearly William and Kate are having to shoulder a lot of this. Um, but you know we haven't also talked about Harry and and Meghan and and you know the sense that that if they had remained as part of the royal family that would have in a sense broadened perhaps its appeal uh, and it still seems to be uh, you know hunting shooting fishing uh, sort of group of people very narrow mixture of people that they mixed with in terms of their own lives um, however much they want to project this image of being the the the, the family of the nation. Graham, I mean, it's moving on to Harry and Meghan, and that's a great segue, Andrew. Thank you. Um, how how much of a blow have they struck to the the reputation of the monarchy and their their standing within British society with some of the revelations they've li uh, released since you know coming out of the royal family? We've had Netflix documentaries, we've had Spotify podcast, Oprah interviews. A lot of it seeming to be very damning of the royal family. Yeah, I think it is hugely damaging, and um, it's not going to go away. That book is still on sale. It's going to carry on selling uh in huge numbers um the netflix series is there i mean i think the crown the netflix drama the crown um probably doesn't help as well because that's bringing to life a lot of the scandals that uh people my age and older can remember from the 80s and earlier um but i think that harry uh and megan is damaging for a whole host of reasons part of it is the opening it you know sort of the shining a light on some of the personal stuff and the family and and all the rest of it Part of it is just this nagging doubt that they can really adapt to accommodate people who don't fit their very narrow um, sort of uh, social set, if you like. You know, and, and Meghan was very different. Um, I think the fact that uh, a black woman was not felt, uh, not made to feel welcome, uh, is also hugely damaging. Um, so yeah, I think it, it, it's it's a problem. I mean, really, the, the, you know, when I was growing up, the monarchy was this. Well, the royal family was, you know, they could pack out a um, uh, the balcony, there'd be all these, you know, princes and dukes and, and whatever. Um, and now we're reduced to, you know, Charles and Camilla, Kate and William. And there's not much else. And that, none of those four are particularly uh, interesting or inspiring. And then on the sidelines, you've got Harry, who is continually a reminder of all these issues, and Andrew, who is a continual, continual reminder of a whole load of other issues. Um, which also not just reflects badly on him, but also on the on the wider institution and the way that they have uh, sought to protect him.
Andrew, you said something interesting moments ago, which I don't think I've heard. And this, this idea that if Harry and Meghan had remained within the royal unit, they would have been an asset. Uh, in what ways do you think that that could have been the case? Because it feels to me like since they've left, their um, popularity with the British public doesn't seem particularly high. I'm not sure if that's directly related to the way they've left or the fact that they're not part of the royal family anymore. But in, in what way could they have been an asset? Well, I mean, they were very much promoted as the Fab Four. Though it was this new dynamic, uh, you know, the two brothers who were close and their partners coming in. Uh, they were being brought in and given jobs like the Commonwealth uh, and elsewhere. So I think that this idea that they weren't made welcome, I don't think is 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 fair. I mean, all all the evidence I've seen is is that they were made a welcome, and and there was a great deal of of sympathy for her uh, and support. And we saw that at the wedding, we saw that Charles walking her up the aisle. Uh, we saw the way that the press covered her. Uh, and for whatever reason, that clearly that relationship broke down. But I think one of the reasons that they are so unpopular is this issue with Harry and Meghan is not uh, about not fitting in uh, and being made to feel welcome. It's about people trying to destroy the institution. And they've been vicious in their attacks, uh, personal attacks on, on King Charles and on uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales. Uh, they've been real hypocrites themselves in terms of the way they behaved with the, the, their sort of celebrity lifestyle. And I think people really don't like that. They, they, they don't want to be lectured to by people who are complete hypocrites. So uh, they haven't been, shall we say, a, a very good role model uh, in terms of what the options might have been. I think you know they've been the, the, the bringers of their own downfall. Uh, and I don't think this country is racist and, and, and wouldn't have wanted to include them. I think the sad thing is there was every opportunity for them to be, uh, to be part of a, a, a new look monarchy. And I think there was perhaps a failure by some of the palace officials uh, to deal with it. But from what one can see and is coming out, a lot of this was premeditated. A lot of it was organized. This is not people responding to, to events. This is people trying to create them and almost create a sense of rejection so that they could actually fight back. Um, I, I think Graham has talked about Spare being there um, and, and do very well. But I mean, we've also, of course, got his promised other book. We've got the possibility of her doing books. But I, I suspect that the sympathies are, are changing. We've seen that even in the States. Uh, and a lot of people feel sorry for the royal family. I think it may well, you may find those, that, that, that those polling figures actually improve for the royal family as a result of what they've uh, gone through and the dignity uh, with which they've responded to these attacks. Graham, I would imagine that you probably had no love for Meghan and Harry while they were part of the royal family, but has your fondness for them grown since they've been on the outside chipping away? No, not really. I mean, I, I observe these things. I'm not particularly interested in celebrity or royals. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would agree that they, they've probably been hypocrites as well. I mean, I think that um, celebrities that uh, champion causes and all the rest of it often are, um, because they're very, very rich and very rich, rich people live very rich lifestyles. And so when it comes to things like the environment and um, or trying to understand people who are in much more difficult um, situations, it, it's it's always tricky. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't think that the royal family responded with much dignity in, in relation to this. I mean, silence isn't dignified when you're being accused of things. And I think that um, we ought to be getting answers from them about um, some of these accusations. And um, I, I think that, uh, I think it just, there's no way it can't be damaging to them because, well, you know, 
before we didn't have all this information and now we have all this information and yes some of it might be exaggerated some of it might is obviously very personal but um you know it, it can't possibly uh, not be damaging for them in the long term well what we've got is a family spat that's been played out in public um uh, you know you say that they have to respond to these accusations but i think the proper place to respond would be within the family uh, and not you know with uh, interviews with oprah uh, and making documentaries with Netflix. Cool. I mean, that's... It's, Sorry, it's, go on, it's, yeah. it's a, I mean, you know, it's a hereditary monarchy, and they talk about the family, and they promote the family, and they use the family to say, look, you know, we're, we're an important institution. We, you know, we give something because, you know, being a family is part of the selling point. So if the family has a problem, then uh, you know, not all of it, but some of it certainly needs to be addressed. And I think there were some accusations which... Um, do raise questions, particularly around uh, um, attitudes towards race and the treatment of uh, Megan. You know, she's made these accusations; they need to be looked at. And uh, well, but she, sorry, sorry to drop, but I mean, she actually rode back from that. I mean, uh, Harry made the point that actually, you know, that wasn't what they were saying. Uh, and you know, it's 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 all very well to make allusions without naming people, uh, uh, and uh, to, to to hint at things. But I, I thought it was very interesting that, you know, in his publicity for, for his for Spare, he has actually, they haven't pursued that as an issue. Um, so I, I think some of these accusations, once they begin to be examined, are, are found actually to have no validity whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I, I seem to remember Prince Harry talking very publicly and thanking the public how welcoming they were uh, of Meghan right up until the point he decided to distance himself. But looking over some of these revelations from the book, I mean, one of the ones that got the most attention with this idea of him and um, William getting to a physical altercation. And on the face of it, when I looked at that, it just seemed to look like two brothers having a scrap in the way that two brothers sometimes fall out. It didn't really seem to tell us anything about the monarchy uh, or them as individuals. It just felt like airing dirty laundry in public. Do you think any of these revelations are particularly significant, Graham? Yeah, I mean, I don't buy this idea that, um, you know, it's just two brothers. They weren't young brothers. You know, I can't remember um, physically assaulting my brother. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm sure we had scraps when we were kids. But, I mean, these these guys were in their late 30s when this happened. Um, and I think it does uh, reflect poorly on them. I think I think a lot of what um, has been said, not just in spare, but also there are other stories about, you know, the princes having... Uh, temper tantrums and just generally being quite petulant, I think it reflects very poorly on them. And I think, going back to what I said before, I don't think that if we had a free and fair election where either William or Charles was on the ballot paper and a bunch of other um, excellent candidates were also on the ballot paper and we had, you know, public debate and we could sit down and, and properly interview them and scrutinise them, I don't think they would be elected, not, not in a million years, because they can't cope with that kind of scrutiny and they don't like being challenged and uh, criticized um and i think that some of that comes out in some of these uh, some of these revelations well i'd say that two th i mean two things i mean you talk about revelations but of course we're only seeing one side of the story here we haven't heard you know anything being verified or any any other point being made it's just a series of assertions that we you know we don't know if they're true or not and, I, I, you know, clearly 30-year-olds uh, shouldn't be scrapping, but I think with the degree of scrutiny that they, they receive and the pressures they have, and you see the sort of uh, hounding of them by the press, you know, sometimes people do snap. People are, are human. Uh, and whether we had a president or, or, or we have a monarch, 
you know, I think we have to accept that people under this degree of scrutiny will sometimes be caught behaving in a way that they may later regret. The thought that if an MP or minister um, was found to have physically assaulted his own brother, um, there would be serious questions about whether they carry on in that job. I think that um, you know, it is not something which we would uh, dismiss as being uh, a brotherly scrap. So, you know, I think we need to apply the same standards as we do to um, other public figures. Um, and we should, you know, we should expect the, the very highest standards. And I don't think that's anything that we um, do get from them. I think they generally behave in a way which is well below the standards we ought to expect. Well, as you say, the scrap, we've only heard one version of events. So I think... We're yeah, yeah what's, what's the phrase? Uh, recollections may vary, I think. <laughs> the queen. We've only had one recollection. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Gray, maybe, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your campaigning for Republic. I mean, explain to us the uh, the emphasis behind the Not My King hashtag. Yeah, I mean, it's very simple, really, is that, uh, you know, we have a head of state who's there only because his mother was head of state beforehand um, in a demo democratic society. Uh, heads of state should be there because we have chosen them. Um, so not my king is a simple statement, the principle that, you know, we don't recognise Charles as being a head of state in that sense, in a moral sense. Um, and we will be uh, organising a large protest at the coronation. I imagine there'll be some other protests there as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we will be driving home that point that we, instead of having... Um, uh, a coronation, which is a fairly daft um, ceremony anyway. I mean, most other monarchies don't have coronations because they realise they were fairly daft a long time ago. Um, instead of having a coronation, we should be having a, a, a public debate and an election. And um, I think that you know the big difference between uh, a republic and a monarchy is the difference between being a spectator and a, and a participant. And I think that in a democracy, we should be participants in this process of choosing a head of state, not spectators, where we are told you know, he's, here he is, uh, he's great, you've got to believe that, we're not going to tell you anything that goes on behind closed doors, you're just going to have to believe he's great, um, and even if you don't think so, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and if people think that Charles is wonderful and should be the head of state, then, you know, vote for him. But, you know, I think the the, the monarchy is a, is, is a way of turning around to everybody else and saying, well, you know, you, you don't get a vote, you know, it's only the people that, that like Charles that get their man in the job. When you when you speak of protesting the coronation, how concerned are, are you in terms of overreach from the, the police, for instance? Because I mean, during I think the the the, the death of the Queen and the, the public's uh, a few members of the public rather were removed from uh, royal gatherings and things for shouting their um, you know uh, critical opinions and, and things like that. And to me personally, I find it distasteful to choose the death of the Queen to do that, but. I don't think being distasteful should require you to be hauled away by a police officer, especially when, you know, you're, you're, you're literally speaking truth to power in that sense. How, how worried are you about police over uh, overreach in, in terms of dissidents? Optically, well, I'll, I'll say something about the protest at the time of the Queen's death, because it wasn't just the Queen's death and it wasn't the Queen's death that they were protesting. They were protesting the accession of a new king. And that sure. is, you know, and you can't um argue for hereditary monarchy in which everything hinges on births deaths and marriages and then say that you can't uh argue the issue and debate the issue at those moments in in the process so you know the death of a monarch is um political in the sense that it's also the accession of a new uh, uh king and therefore protesting was entirely um legitimate and it was outrageous that those protests were um protesters were arrested 
Um, as far as the coronation, I've actually had a meeting just this afternoon with the Metropolitan Police, um, and you know they've uh, given us every assurance that, as far as they're concerned, peaceful protests will be allowed to um, be carried out wherever they, you know, wherever the public are permitted to be, um, and we intend to have. Uh, hundreds of people at least. Um, we've already got several hundred people saying they're going to be there um, at the coronation as close to the the main event as we can be. Andrew, do you have any concerns about free speech in the UK in, in regards to voicing your opposition to the monarchy given what we, we've seen uh, at pre previous gatherings and, and protests? Well, I'm a great believer in free speech. So, I mean, I, I you know, it's interesting, you know, it's, it's very good that uh, Graham's had this meeting with the Met and, the, and has been given these assurances because, you know, I, it, we live in a democracy where we are allowed to, to hold different views and to express those views. Uh, and I think it's appalling that people were arrested um, uh, after the Queen died. Um, because uh, you you made the point about good taste. There were it was in since uh, the focus was on the, in effect the funeral of, of 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 the queen, but I think Graham's absolutely right. It was also a moment for the accession. But I think my own feeling was it was probably bad taste. You know, to, this was a family that was in, in grieving, and it was not really that who had to be in public. This was not the time to make those protests. The time may be at the coronation. And that is the proper accession, not the moment when someone has just died. Sorry, I think Graham just wants to come back in on that. I think his microphone's just muted for the moment. Ah, there we go. Yeah, you know, Charles is head of state, and he should be there um, at least defending our values as a country. And he has said nothing at all about these arrests. Now, in 2013, the Dutch Queen uh, abdicated and her son became king and at the king's day which is an annual event um uh, hans mason this uh republican uh, dutch republican stood in the middle of a crowd on his own there was someone else uh, with him but she was um the other side of the square i think and he just held up a sign and um the saying abolished monarchy and the dutch police took him away put him in a van held on to him for a couple of hours and then let him go again and the king himself apologized Charles has said nothing. And I think that's, again, a poor reflection. He doesn't want to engage with anything other than his own narrow interests. And he doesn't want to do anything other than what he has already, you know, sort of decided is going to do. He doesn't, he ought to have said very clearly, of course, you know, freedom of speech is really important. Of course, dissent is really important. Um, and he doesn't, he, he, just, he just completely ignored it. And I think that's a real but shame. But isn't one of the points that he is above politics? He shouldn't be interfering uh, with with whatever's going on with the with the the uh, law enforcement agencies. Um, you know, I, I don't think he can be criticised for um, for that. Isn't yeah, Graham, is, isn't there a big difference between uh, upholding the principle of free speech in general and openly disagreeing with the police? I think that you can. Um very make a very clear statement as anyone can as a, you know, as the prime minister could and didn't um that you know there should be um it doesn't have to be a specific comment on a specific case but as you know the the king of uh, the dutch king did do this did apologize you know but they could have said look these people were being arrested in my name because they were you know criticizing me then it's probably reasonable to comment and say look you know the values of our country are free speech, um, the right to dissent. And to remain completely silent on these things, I think, is appalling. 
Well, the um, debate was held in the press. I mean, isn't that the place for it to be held rather than, you know, the head of state uh, jumping in? What's the, point of the, what's the point of the head of state? I mean, this is the thing is that, you know, the head of state should be there to uh, reflect and represent our values. And if you have someone in, uh, well, I mean, any of that, as I said before, about Richard von Weizsäcker has um, made a, a powerful speech about the way Germany reflects on its past. Um, and other heads of state around Europe have, uh, have also made these sorts of statements and uh, talked about these sorts of things. These, these kind of broad issues. I mean, if we are talking well, about one minute saying he's, he, if we're talking, if we're saying that he's okay talking about the environment, which is hugely complicated and, and very political, then surely he can say something about some fundamental values which almost all of us believe in, which seem to be under attack by um, by police officers arresting people protesting. Uh, against the king. You know, it just seems like the obvious time when he should be saying something. Well, I mean, I can see, I suppose there's one interesting episode we haven't talked about, which is when the queen uh, went to Ireland and there was that great moment of reconciliation and an apology for what had happened in the past. So, I mean, these things do happen. Um, and I suppose that is an element of getting involved in in politics there. Um but I think it's, you know, I, I, I think it's a very nuanced thing. And, and you know, it was one man, I think, who was, who was arrested for, for, for protesting, wasn't it? Isn't there a large, sorry, isn't there a larger problem here as well that the UK does have rather harsh speech laws and codes that are very uh, it poorly defined? And it may actually be the case that the police acted well within their rights and, and the law as the law is stated in the UK and, and, and in terms of free speech. So it might have put Charles in a position where he was actually contradicting uh, the legal stance on these things. It's a, it's a matter of principle. I mean, the point is that, you know, Charles has spoken up on human rights in places like um uh, China and Iraq um he hasn't spoken up on <laughs> these fundamental values in his own country um he also doesn't criticize human rights abuses in places like Bahrain uh Jordan or um uh, Qatar because he's friends with the people that uh, that run those places so you know there is a uh, I think it is highly questionable what he chooses to uh, speak on. I don't think well, it's unreasonable to expect a head of state to, um, at the very least, uphold our most cherished values. Well, I think to be fair, I mean, you know, real politique means that a lot of other people aren't criticizing some of these regimes in the Middle East. You know, we've seen terrible things happen in Saudi Arabia. Everyone's saying we'll have nothing to do with them. And then, of course, because we need them to buy arms or we need oil or whatever it is, you know, governments are are engaging. So, you know, I don't think you can you can just isolate Charles acting badly, you know, this is just as living in the real world. Well, I, again, I think that we, you know, we ought to be able to decide who our head of state is on whether or not and, and judge them accordingly. I mean, you may well think that Charles is, is doing nothing wrong. Uh, I don't agree. And therefore, we, we didn't get say that. Choose, well, what in this particular context, but I mean, I, 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 the point is, we, there are clearly concerns about the way he behaves and the, his values and his choices that he makes. And therefore, we should, when we have this debate, it should end in a vote on who we want as a head of state. Um, but that's not going to happen. So, I mean, at a basic fundamental level, um, you know, you, if you like Charles, if you think he should be head of state, vote for him. Uh, but don't tell everyone else they can't vote for someone else. That is but, that should be a, a very simple uh, democratic point. And the, and the the alternative to the monarchy is 
you know, is a very straightforward democratic system, which not only gets rid of the monarchy and has a, an accountable head of state that we can choose, but also uh, opens up the way to improve our constitution uh, right across the board. But you say we're not going to have a referendum, and the reason we're not going to have a referendum is there isn't really a majority of the population who want the referendum. I mean, that even with your figures, uh, even if some of them are neutral or, or, or not quite sure, we do not have a majority who are positively agitating for uh, a change in the system. Sorry, Graham, I think are you Sorry. back with us. Sorry. I am. Um... I wasn't referring to a referendum. I was referring to a vote for our head of state. I'm saying that we, we, um, you know, we, we shouldn't be, uh, you know, debates about the royals. I often see these in the in the press or in radio phone-ins. You know, do you think Harry should be going to the coronation? Do you think Queen uh, Camilla should be the queen, etc.? And it makes me laugh because all these debates can go around and around in circles. But it's not a democracy in the sense of the monarchy and they're not interested, uh, they will do what they want to do. And, you know, it shouldn't be like that. If we are debating whether or not Charles is fit to be head of state, there should be an opportunity at some point to then decide whether he is head of state. Um, in other words, there should be elections. And if he wants to be head of state, he can put himself up for election. He can stand in the studio with five other candidates and debate the issues. He can answer these questions and, and concerns about his record. Um, and then everyone can make an informed decision. Well, well, one of the reasons why the, there isn't the pressure is because we don't allow we, we you know he isn't he doesn't allow that kind of scrutiny he doesn't put himself up for um, sort of news night uh, interviews he doesn't um, debate the issues he doesn't uh, come clean on all of the things that is well, going on behind closed doors. There is extraordinary scrutiny of the royal family. I mean, they're in the papers every day, and everything they do is 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 followed. Hang a minute, um, I've got a solution here. I'm a celebrity royal edition. We had its royal knockout, and that didn't go very well. But if you look at the election in 2011 in for Ireland, you know they had a range of different candidates, and Michael D. Higgins was very clearly the the best and most powerful, uh, in, a, as a, um, a really inspiring, um, interesting, and eloquent leader. And he was elected, and then re-elected for a second time unopposed, um, and. You know, I don't buy the idea that they're scrutiny. Scrutiny isn't simply being talked about. Scrutiny is being able to, um, you know, actually challenge them directly um, to have full access to all the information that we need to, you know, they're not covered by the Freedom of Information Act. Well, I mean, you know how difficult it is, Andrew, getting stuff out of their archives. You know, exactly, is. and that's why there is scrutiny. I mean, why people like me, even who are you know, professed monarchists are challenging these things. I mean, they, they shouldn't be given a free ride. Well, uh, gentlemen, we, like to see more sorry, we have about two minutes left. So I think it might be a good idea if, Andrew, if you can possibly sum up in a minute why you think the royal family are of worth and why you think they're worth keeping, that'd be wonderful. Well, the fact is that the people want them to stay. We haven't got a move uh, for them to go. Uh, this is the public consensus, you know, voting with their feet in effect here. Um, so I, I just don't, I think it's a side issue. Um, I think they do provide a role as the sort of unifying force in the, in the country. I think we're going to see this with the debates over the breakup of the, of the United Kingdom uh, and, and Scottish devolution and independence. So uh, I don't think there's any great demand for them to go. So I, 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 uh, in some ways, the case has to be made by by Graham. Graham, a minute to tell us why the royal family should be abolished. 
Yeah, well, it's uh, unprincipled. Um, it's a corrupt institution, in my view, and it's bad for our democracy. It, it leaves us without an effective head of state um, and, uh, and a very powerful prime minister. So, um, you know, whichever way you cut it, it doesn't live up to the standards that we expect in, of people in public life. Um, it doesn't get proper scrutiny. There isn't proper free uh, and open uh, rigorous debate on, on all the various uh, things that happen. I mean, uh, we're still waiting for the police to investigate um, uh, Charles over accusations of cash for honours, and they're just not doing that. So, you know, there are a whole host of reasons why the institution is not fit for purpose. Uh, the principled one is one of the most powerful, and the simple truth is there is a very democratic alternative on offer. And I think that we will see the polls shifting over the next few years, and, uh, and at some point we will get rid of it. Just made it in under a minute. Fantastic. Gentlemen, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you very much for putting your points across so eloquently and, and with civility as well. I, I appreciate your time and, and uh, I'll, I'll let you get back to what's left of your evening. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Nice to speak to you. Hey now. Well done. That was uh, fascinating. I'm going to ask the viewers as well. What do you guys think? Do you want an abolition of the monarchy? Put one in the chat if you do. If you want the monarchy to keep going, put two in the chat. And if you've not seen our previous work with Andrew Lowney on Lord Mountbatten, etc., go on YouTube and search it out and also check out his book. And oh, ones, got ones. Get I'm, I'm getting apathetic towards it. I'm, I'm for abolition so long as I don't have to chip in and do anything. It's like, you know, if, if I have to sign something, fine. But as long as I don't have to directly lift anything, uh, I'm good. <laughs> a couple of, couple of twos, but mostly ones. We want monarchy gone, says Matrix ate my homework. <laughs> Steeples is a two. But he doesn't like certain rogue members, I believe. All right. Well, that is part one of Atwood Unleashed 90. Coming to an end, I've just been told we're going to have Ryan Dawson back next week. We've not had him on for months. He's got a huge following, and it's, there's going to be fireworks when he comes back on. So I'm looking forward to that. And then if you want to join us on Patreon, I've got Kevin Annette, who's going to be exposing the Vatican, the Royals, the politicians. We've got Brad Abrams talking about conspiracies and scenarios of extraterrestrial women seducing men via interspecies romance. And we've got Siddharth Kara, whose podcast with Joe Rogan on cobalt mining went viral. Huge thank you to Stephen Knight. And his links are all in the description box. So please yes. go down and check out his channel and sub and support his work. That'd be much appreciated. Been fun. Yeah, much love and respect wherever you are in the world watching this. Take care. Hope to see some of you on Patreon shortly. And our next scheduled podcast, I do believe, is Sunday, 6 p.m. This guy out of Bradford called Jar, who was almost macheted to death. He was a gang member. All right, cheers, everyone. Take care. Right. There we go. Stay with yeah. us, Brad. Stay with us. <laughs> Technically here, hopefully. This works. Huge thank you for joining us. Where in the States are you? I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay. 
I was in Arizona for quite a while. I did go over to Texas once. Very friendly people. It is indeed, yeah. It is friendly here. And how did you get into filmmaking? Oh, I, I had when I was growing up uh, as a kid, the um, the lady who ran my local video store in the suburbs. Uh, I would go and try and rent whatever like shitty blockbuster was <laughs> was just out on video, and she would say, "No, no, no, you don't want that. You want this." And she would hand me like a David Lynch film or a mm. Werner Herzog film, and I was like, you know, eleven or something, and. That started off my my sort of cinematic education, and I started to to like appreciate um, this this more off kilter way of telling stories, and also like fringe subject matter. And I think that's that's really what what got me interested in wanting to tell these stories too. Yeah, they're both two of my dad's favorites, and he introduced uh -huh. me to them, and I, I've I've always been been a fan. Yeah. But you've covered an eclectic range of things, cryptozoology, love and sources, um, inter-species romance of an extraterrestrial woman, <laughs> and chronicled it in surreal impressionist painting. So are you multi-talented then? Well, I, this was my doc subject that, that did all that uh, for that my movie Love and Saucers. Um, yeah, he... I think he's almost 80 now, but he claimed uh, he lost his virginity to an extraterrestrial woman when he was 17. <laughs> and um, and he, he had some like uh, skill in painting. So he decided to to chronicle it all in in paintings. And he had like hundreds of encounters, a lot of them erotic. When I heard his story, I was just like, either he's... <laughs> He's like totally bonkers, um, and then it's not really worth making a film about. But if he isn't, if he if he seems you know relatable and down to earth, then then what an interesting story to try and tell and sort of break people's conceptions about. Mm -hmm. Definitely. What was it like meeting him? He, you know, I totally disarmed me because he seemed just like you know a nice normal grandpa, um, and. And everyone that I talked to that knew him, he worked in a deli. Um, all his neighbors in the street that I talked to were just like, oh, yeah, David's great. Uh, half of them didn't know about his experience. He's never really told anybody. Um, and, yeah, lives with his ex-wife, which is a little odd. Um, but other than that, normal guy with, the, like, very extraordinary claims. Did you get his ex-wife's take? on his allegations of interspecies relationships and no so she i asked her about 10 times even in person and she said well she was very nice pleasant helpful uh said she wanted no part whatsoever in in the documentary wow. so leads me to believe she you know not only thinks it's crazy but also that it probably led to them getting divorced in the first place so respected that and, and kept her out of it. And people can watch Love and Sources at bradabrams.net forward slash love dash and dash sources. Yeah, and it's it's on Amazon too. Um, I think it streams for free on Amazon Prime in the UK and in the US. It's You can rent it. Um, I think it's on Tubi for free, maybe even YouTube. So it's it's easy to watch. So what do you think of conspiracy theorists? 
Yeah, so that's another, you know, besides like UFO abductees, um, conspiracy theorists are one of my main interests. Um, mostly from kind of probing at the nature of the belief itself rather than trying to like break down each individual conspiracy theory. Um, Cause I just feel like if, if we can more so try and figure out why people believe in, especially the real fringe ones, like, you know, reptilian agenda, as an example that, you know, all of our elite are actually like alien uh, reptiles from another star system we can try and figure out like, why do people believe in that? Cause it seems ridiculous to most people hard to believe that anyone would fall into that. Um, but I think it's not that, that like huge of a leap when you actually try and break it down. And then it helps to be able to talk to like a huge subset of the population, probably like, I know in the, in the States, it's like 50% of people believe in some conspiracy theory. A lot of them turn out to be true over time, you know, like the governmental ones in particular, um, you find out however many decades later. So um, that's where that's where my interest really lays in there with with them and um, trying to sort of present in a in a non judgmental sort of neutral way, um, even though I myself am not like a believer in in most of them. OK, so I did a lot of coverage on the Epstein case. I got my yeah. term, terminated twice over oh. I've written two books about it. <laughs> And some media entities classified me as a conspiracy theorist for covering that case. Do you, you know, where do you draw the line then? Is, is JFK, is that conspiracy theories? Is Epstein conspiracy theories versus well, you know, reptilian shape-shifting, Illuminati, yeah. Yeah, other yeah. people? I mean, it's all, it's all theories until they're like uh, uh, definitively proven, right? But I think that they're, within that then um, there's outlandish theories that are very unlikely to be true, right? Like alien overlords. Um, and then there's ones where there's rich and powerful people and politicians involved, which um, uh, like, of course, there's a possibility that it's true because of the whole history of, of, uh, of cover-ups, you know, like we used to think it was crazy when anyone said the government was spying on us and reading our text messages and our phone calls. And then when all the Snowden stuff came out, that was like the, you know, um was considered one of the biggest conspiracy theories of all that turned out to be a fact so i don't think that those ones that um like the ones that you mentioned are are crazy at all except when you know if they're like but it was you know uh, linking it to some fantastical thing like alien overlords so i've interviewed so, yeah. david i've interviewed david Icke five times yeah and you know he talks about the reptilian shape-shifting uh royal family mm -hmm. for example do you think those caricatures are just exaggerated because if you look at the class system and how the working class and the middle class raise their kids versus the elites, you know, how they raise their kids um, to be quite psychopathic in, in some cases. If you look at the royal family, you know, when Princess Di clicked up with them and they were all hunting and dismembering animals and eating meat and she was horrified. Um, is, is the reptilian consciousness it's, it's not too far removed really from that would you say that that is an in, i think a really interesting way to look at it uh, more so of class and that being what's alien um about about like a an elite group of people for sure because i think one um 
one definition or or uh, description of like why conspiracy theories or theorists come about that I really like is that they're created where we're like real life trauma meets systemic failures and deficiencies. And, and in most cases, that means like political or class-based deficiencies. And, and so it, if you've had trouble in your own life and you pair that with, you see uh, a breakdown on a political scale, um, it makes a lot of sense why those sort of conspiracies start to, to bubble up to the surface. And yeah, it might just be an analogy um, uh, that he's, that subconsciously he's getting at. Um, but I'd love to talk to David Icke too, because I think he's, that would be, you know, fascinating interview. Do you think that these far-fetched conspiracy theories serve a function of getting people to challenge their belief systems and expanding what they think about? It probably does do that, but I don't think in the most helpful way. I think that there's definitely other ways to do that, like, you know, just reading philosophy um, and getting into, you know, practices like meditation. Um, and, and it's interesting because uh, there's this whole new world um, called conspirituality. You know, it's sort of the the new age to conspiracy pipeline um, that you never really necessarily equated them before. Um, and where it's like a lot of yoga people and meditation people that are now believing in like the Anunnaki and um, star seeds and uh, what are now considered to be conspiracies um so there is this there is like a bleeding into almost every kind of subculture now of of that sort of thing is that because those yoga people are taking too much ayahuasca (laughs) 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 definitely a a lot of that going on (laughs) okay so with, with the um conspiracies then what what's your thoughts on the jfk you know the magic bullet and stuff like that yeah, that I, I I think that that it there's this term the opposite of a conspiracy theorist is coincidence theorist. You know that uh, when you ignore all of the discrepancies, um, and I think that to to come to the conclusion that nothing there was nothing weird about the JFK assassination is mm-hmm. like your coincidence theorist because there were so many odd odd things. Um, going on with that and and that's one where yeah it's almost mainstream now to to acknowledge that there was a lot more afoot I don't know exactly what that was but yeah well I think Oliver Stone linked it to the CIA and there's an often yeah. banded theory that the, the term conspiracy theory came from the CIA to discredit people who were challenging the government yeah yeah it, it kind of similar to um, they also you know, um, seeded a lot of UFO stuff uh, to cover up secret projects that were going on at the time, like um, the stealth bomber and and things like that, where they uh, would infiltrate UFO groups and plant news stories um, to, to, to make people believe it's the really outlandish thing so that it takes them off the trail of the real thing. We've got a viewer question for you, uh, which is... It's from Matthew Steeples. What does the guest think of the disappearance of Shogar, the racehorse? Has he listened to Ice T's theories on that? I I've not heard of that. It sounds fascinating. 
No. Do you know what that is? Sure. I have, the not, I have not heard of that either. No. I, I I'm ashamed that I don't know that one, and I have to make a note of it. All right. So fringe. <laughs> ca- do fringe cases, extreme cases, tell us more about ourselves, human nature? Yeah, I I believe so. I think it's it's really important. Like a lot of people, they ask me why uh, why focus on like the more outlandish claims or people with the more outlandish experiences. And I've just always believed that that's how you actually learn the most about um, ourselves, uh, our own perception, why we believe things, and and so even though I don't agree or necessarily believe uh, some of the subjects I interview, like for example, the the uh, David who claimed he lost his virginity to an ET, um, it, it still, I think is really useful in, in learning about like how we process um, uh, uh, maybe visions or hallucinations or mystical experiences and, and what they mean to us and culture and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Outside of David, then, could you give us some examples of cases you have studied or people you've interviewed with extreme beliefs and how they specifically have taught you more about yourself? Yeah, I so I did a, a documentary about this a conspiracy theorist named David Dees, and he he was sort of known as the the unofficial artist of conspiracy culture. He made these really wild collages hundreds and hundreds of them um and passed away somewhat recently um and he believed in every single conspiracy that he wrote about like any conspiracy under the sun pretty much he believed it um and and um he also had a lot of trauma in his life too um that coincided with when his beliefs started to take hold in him um and and to me it was just helpful instead of thinking this guy is just crazy um and to disregard him and write him off um it made it clear that uh the genesis for a lot of these beliefs was based on something um very real that happened to his life and happened in his life and understanding that and understanding him better was able to connect with him much more um and also helped me now connect with uh other people who I have like, you know, um, big disagreements with, but I don't think that should stop conversations from happening. Is there a unifying theory of the paranormal? Yeah, <laughs> I like that question. Um, there's, there's a school of thought that uh, UFO phenomenon, uh, cryptozoology, like Bigfoot, uh, ghosts, um, and parapsychology, like, you know, psychic phenomenon that it's all connected um and that it's all it's all the same thing even mystical experience and and religious experience is all tied into that um and that it's all the form that it takes is based on the era that we live in so like if this was the 1500s and you saw something in the sky well that's angelic it's god or an angel but when we see that now in our technological age oh it's a it's a spaceship and there's aliens on board um, but that they're all essentially all these experiences are the same thing, but that we can never know exactly what that thing is. It's like looking at the the reflection of the stained glass, but you can never see the source of the light. And I find that super interesting that it's more connected to our consciousness than anything like external. Um, and that seems to be where I've been landing um, 
when it comes to all of these phenomena. So it's got to be taken in the context of the belief systems of the yeah. era, the, the phenomenon so. yeah. expressed itself. Yeah, yeah. Like there was, uh, had you ever heard of Michael Persinger, the scientist from Canada? He, he developed the God Helmet. No, what's the God Helmet? Yeah, it, it was this wacky looking 70s ski helmet uh, with a bunch of like electromagnetic uh, components. Um, and it was to basically to simulate the God experience in whoever wore it. <laughs> and what he found in the lab, this was like legit, you know, uh, educational institution research that people who were atheists that went into it just thought there was someone in the room with them. But people who were religious, like if they were Christian, they thought Jesus was in the room with them. If they were Muslim, you know, it's Muhammad. And if they were a Native American, it could be one of the uh, in the pantheistic uh, entities. So uh, that based on your own orientation, um, it, it changes with, with each experience that you have. Because we see that with near-death experiences, don't we? If it's someone yeah. in the West, there's Jesus and God. If it's someone in the East, it's Buddha or you know it is the context of where they were brought up yeah yeah exactly so we've got we've got to cover this then <laughs> um what is the protocol as described by david for an interspecies interspecies <laughs> romantic <laughs> liaison i mean was was the other species fitted with um the correct apparatus for a human so being <laughs> to copulate with? Luckily for him, um, anatomically, they were just like <laughs> a female human, um, except that they had the big eyes and the little mouth and likely were wearing a wig. Um, but he said the sex was great. And he felt at first, like the first few times that he had no control over his body, like almost like a paralysis. Um, and she did all the work. <laughs> and uh, he I, he doesn't have any tips, though, on how to to make that happen for yourself or for anybody else. So because he doesn't know why he was picked. <laughs> so lower body human, but upper body alien face. Did, did that prevent yeah. did that prevent kissing then French kissing? I, uh, they didn't kiss. I don't think they kissed, but he said they rubbed heads and that they liked to do that. That was the foreplay, rubbing heads? Rubbing heads was the foreplay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <clears throat> Could such relationships produce an offspring or is that... <laughs> yeah, according to him, um, he has like hundreds of hybrid uh, alien human babies that are just like out there in the galaxy. Um, yeah. And did he describe he, he what showed. they look like? What his offspring look like? <laughs> yeah, and they, they look like little alien gray babies, but as they grow up, um, they look more and more human, but with just bigger black eyes. And he would play hide and seek with them on the spaceship, he remembers. So does he periodically get abducted or beamed up so he can see his kids? It happened, um, he said it happened in the past, but lately he, with age, it's just sort of um, turned into dreams or dream experiences. Oh, okay. 
is that like um when people travel what's that called when they travel astral yeah yeah yes. maybe the astral travel something like that yeah yeah, yeah. um we just got a question in from another one of the viewers let's see where is it um i think it was from fred have you seen the tv show called utopia Oh, you know, I have, um, I had a long time ago, but I don't remember it well. I just remember thinking it was great and liking it. So earlier on then, you urged people to study the philosophers instead of the conspiracy theories. <laughs> which, which philosophers would you recommend they start out with? Oh, well, actually, there's this, there's this, uh, I personally like um, Krishnamurti. He was sort of an anti-guru. Uh, they had handpicked him, the Theosophists, uh, which were the original New Agers, had sort of handpicked him to be the new Messiah. And he rejected all of that um, and lived in England for a while and then the U.S. And, um, and sort of devoted his life to kind of ridding yourself of a lot of past negative conditioning and, and societal conditioning. And I really like him um, a lot. And also, no, it's... it's, it's uh, pretty mainstream, but Alan Watts, I think is great too. Um, his, his talks on meditation and, um, spirituality, it's very accessible and funny. Um, and then <clears throat> more modern is this writer, Jeffrey Kripal, and he's actually in my documentary and he's a professor of, uh, comparative religious studies in Rice University in Houston. Uh, and his books are incredible. Like I really recommend him too. So the first guy you mentioned, and what is the mechanism for deconditioning your programming from birth? It really is about, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a little passe to say, but it comes down to being mindful, right? And being present um, and sort of observing your, your emotional reactions before you react, you know, like how we have triggers that lead to like angry outbursts as an example or emotional outbursts. And it's like being able to recognize that, recognize why are you getting angry? Like what's going on in your life that has led to this becoming a trigger and kind of breaking all of that down and being really, um, being really mindful about all of that. And, and that helps you to sort of uh, live a more um, kind of, uh, I guess, a rewarding life. And have you found that easy to maintain? Because in my case, you know, oh, no. started... yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. No way. Yeah. What were you going to say? In my life, I've studied meditation and I'm generally a relaxed, mm. calm person. But every now and then someone, <laughs> someone's come into my life that's rocked my world. And I've had to look at, at how I invited that into my life, really, mm. and take responsibility for it. But at the time when you're having an emotional reaction, yeah, it can knock you off kilter for a considerable period of time. Yeah, and it makes sense why we have them, like evolutionarily speaking, and some people just seem to be able to trigger us really badly or unhealthily for some reason, and it might be unconsciously we're linking them to something else or someone else in the past. Because I've been watching a lot of videos about narcissists recently. Yeah, right, yeah. And how, you know, how they come in and love bomb people and... Um, the people open up emotionally to them and they use it against them, but they're all about destruction and, and chaos at, at the end of it. It's all yeah. about de depleting your resources. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever had anyone like that in your life? 
Oh, uh, you know, and you can call them energy vampires too, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, a couple past um, girlfriends that, that ended up being a situation like that, that uh, I was sort of too young and inexperienced at the time to recognize it. But now can see that it was, it was that sort of situation or like a narcissist situation. Looking back then, what were the warning signs? Um, the warning signs were, um, uh, basically like, you know, the alternating between love bombing and explosive negative outbursts. Yeah. And that cycle. Yeah. Continuing. Continuing. Uh How did you, how did you extricate yourself from those situations? Um, <laughs> not gracefully, but I just ended in <laughs> explosive outbursts. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and did it take a while to recover once you'd finished? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's traumatic to be exposed to that type of, of, uh, personality, you know? Yeah. Right. Mm. We, we, yeah. Cause we're gonna, we're looking to get some experts on narcissism on the channel and, and get oh, deeper into right. that. I find it fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've only got a couple of minutes left. Are you about to say something? Yeah, I just saw in the chat someone said that David is is um, uh, must be friends with Simon Parks. Is who's Simon Parks? Is this like a UK person that I don't know? I don't know either. Where's that one? Uh... Oh, I think it looks like I just searched him up that he was a UK labor counselor. Um, that revealed aliens had been studying humans since the dawn of our species. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. The final thing we've got to talk about then, because we've only got two minutes left, you got sure. kicked out of your first shoot for Conspiracy Theorist documentary? <laughs> yeah, we we were at a uh, filming at a conference um, called the Secret Space Program Conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's sort of a group of people that believe the government's been running a secret space program since the 50s or since Roswell, um, and that a lot of these people at the conference um, believe that they were abducted as children and trained as super soldiers in this space program and that they were, you know, sold into sex slavery to reptilians and were slave labor on the on the moon working in mines. And, um, and so we, you know, thought it'd be an interesting venue to try and find some subjects for our film. And uh, got permission to film, um, had our cameras out, and then sort of quickly realized that um, having cameras out in a setting of like 200 fairly paranoid people wasn't a good look. And and over the course of a couple days, the the sentiment towards us started to turn like more and more hostile. And eventually, um, they accused us of being federal agents uh, that were working under... Uh, multiple identities and that we were poisoning them with um, uh, psychic dark energy and, <laughs> and they asked, asked us to leave and, and oh. uh, made us totally rethink our approach on how to, how to um, approach and film in situations like this. Speaking of super soldiers, did you ever look at the, at the Scandinavian? I think they were twins who uh, ran into the motorway, the freeway out here in the UK. There's a documentary called yes. Madness in yeah, the Fast yeah. Lane. Yeah, I didn't watch that doc, but that was, I remember the story when it happened. And it seems, yeah, it was, it was wild. They threw themselves under trucks going at high speed. The cops come out 
and they jump one of them jumps up and just starts throwing the cops around attacking the cops and that's just yeah. the beginning of the documentary it gets crazier and crazier all the way through it i gotta watch that yeah and there's all kinds of theories about them <laughs> on, online because they just disappeared but um it's been a huge pleasure brad yeah thank Likewise. you let, let please thank let the you. viewers know where they can find you and support you yeah, um, you can. I'm on Twitter as Love and Saucers and Instagram Brad WTF. Um, and you can just you know follow me or reach out to me on there. I wish you much success in what you're Thank doing, you do, my friend. Appreciate it's been it. an absolute absolute yeah. delight chatting with you. Take yeah, care, Brad. Yeah, this was great. All right, bye bye. Cheers, my mate. Bye. All right, next up, Kevin Annette. He's back. One of our most reoccurring guests, exposing. The Vatican, the royals, the Canadian politicians, the Chinese, to name but a few of the dark entities that Kevin Annette has concentrated on for his many years in activism. How's it going, Kevin? Pretty good. Can you hear me? I've had trouble with my audio. No, we can hear you absolutely fine. Excellent. Um, just before we get into the latest news with you then, for viewers who are not familiar with your work, just give us a reminder of, of what you stand for. Liberty, equality, fraternity. <laughs> anyway, um, campaign for a quarter of a century or more to expose initially the genocide of indigenous children, and now it's spread all over the world in a, really a common law movement to put the criminals in power on trial and depose them uh, in a nutshell. And why is this month and year so significant to you and your activism? Well, 25 years ago, the whole movement kicked off. That pink poster on the wall, it was our first forum in Vancouver about the residential school crimes. Um, and in that year, 1998, you saw the first public exposure of the mass murder of Indigenous children, the first protests uh, at these churches responsible, the Catholic, the Anglican, the United uh, Churches. And then we held our uh, first tribunal in June of 98, which really brought out, you know, the things that the media refused to talk about, you know, not the sexual and physical assaults on children, but sterilization programs that were running. You know, if you were a native person, you wouldn't convert, wouldn't go to church you got a red tag and you had to get sterilized. That's been documented all over. Murderbydecree.com, our website, documents the eyewitnesses, the documents showing how this happened. All of that burst forth 25 years ago. And so in recognition of that, we're holding events really all over the world, but especially in Canada, um, teach-ins and then direct actions at these churches. Because uh, one of the good things that happened, I don't know if you can see that picture right there, that's a guy called Chief Capilano. He was a Squamish traditional chief in Vancouver. And um, soon after we started our protest, he issued a court order evicting all the churches from his territories. This is about 77 churches saying, look, you never got permission to build here. You use your churches to wipe out our people. I'm not only uh, evicting you, but he appointed me as his legal agent. So we, in the BC Supreme Court, we filed this document which is uh, really not only an eviction order, but a, a notice of appointment where I was given the legal right of entry into these churches. And it was really amazing. After we, we did that, we had the law on our side. 
you might remember from our previous interviews how whenever we did these church occupations, the police would show up, but they'd, they'd never intervene. They'd just stand there when we were, you know, would go into the church services and talk about their crimes. That eventually forced the Canadian government to issue a, you know, their bogus apology in 2008 because the churches were freaking out that we're going in and, you know, taking, <laughs> disrupting their Sunday services. We weren't really. We were just standing there with our banners and flyers. But it hit a... Uh, a nerve. And the reason we were able to do that is because we had this legal power to, to do so. The law was on our side, as it still is. Now, that mushroomed over the years. That's what led to our whole campaign in Europe that forced uh, Pope Benedict out of office. And again, this Saturday, February the 11th, is the uh, 10th anniversary of Pope Benedict stepping down after our common law court issued a um, the verdict, which found him and Queen Elizabeth and others guilty of these mass murders of, of children and, and the consequent cover-up of them. Um, and, you know, we know that the Spanish government was about to, uh, had notified them that if the Pope came to Spain, he'd face arrest after they looked at our, our material. Three cardinals along with him then stepped down. This is all the result of massive public exposure and that common accord. So we're celebrating a lot this month. Um, also, it's my birthday on Friday, and I oh. turned 67. I've been at this since I'm 39, so I just wanted to say it's good to still be alive after wow. all these years. Right? And, and you've had some yeah. close calls. So, okay, regarding these churches then, you know, I was raised a Catholic. They taught us the commandments in school. Thou shalt not kill is quite a priority in the uh, Catholic teachings. How can these churches do the complete opposite of their own commandment? Well, I mean, the commandment, when you look in the Old Testament in the, the in Hebrew, it doesn't say thou shalt not kill. What that was is a prohibition against uh, uh, vengeance killings. So if somebody in your family got killed, you'd go kill one of them. It was a prescription against that, not against killing in general. Because, I mean, look, the Catholic Church is the most blood-soaked institution in human history. Just do a count of the people killed by it. So it's, you know, and uh, in their myth mythical system god killed his only son to save all of us i mean child sacrifice and murder and genocide are built right into the whole ideology of their their system so i mean no in practice the the people it's kind of like you know i i've said this to you before the town child rapist always has the best reputation because you've got the most to conceal you've got to surround them if, if you see a guy walking around in a white robe all the time like jorge bagolio in rome He's got something to hide. Why would he hide behind the white robe all the time? I mean, it's just common sense. But you just do the, the the straight historical research and look at the hard evidence. And they're quite the opposite of what they claim, which is why, you know, we say to people in, uh, now who still, for some reason, still go to these churches, um, look, you're contributing to a criminal conspiracy. There's a standing policy still in the Catholic Church. Children are raped. The police are not to be told. Everyone is silenced. That's a criminal conspiracy to help child rapists. Every Catholic in the world is expected to take part in that. Well, there's a legal and a moral consequence to that. It means that you can face arrest under international law for helping a what they call a transnational criminal organization. The Vatican Bank launders money for the mob. It, it traffics human beings. It's heavily involved in the arms industry and big pharma. You know, that, there was a funny thing, you know, the... Pope Francis, Jorge Bagolio, was just in Africa. And uh, he was he was preaching to the, the Africans about how you should choose peace, not war. Well, here's here's the guy who's got one of the heaviest investors in the arms industry 
And he's personally implicated in the murder of, of people in Argentina. Um, you know, during he was a good buddy of the military junta there during their dirty wars. And, you know, so, I mean, like the, it's it's criminal hypocrisy, but it's it's also mind blowing what you can get away with when you're hiding behind a, a, a religious facade. Right. Why is it so often that these predators are pillars of the community? Well, I think, you know, it isn't just a way to cover their crime. There's this uh, group think among all of us. We don't want to look at it. We want we we were taught to believe that people in power are virtuous. Uh, you know, that that a pope and a king and a queen and a prime minister, they couldn't possibly order the killing of people. Well, I mean, I think now people are less uh, credulous than they used to be about that. But um, it's still the case that we want to believe in the lie. Right. It's safer to believe in the lies. So all, you know, like a, a priest or a politician is very good at saying to people what they need to hear. And so uh, it's partly our fault too. Our the way we've been. Uh, not only taught to think and act, but what's comfortable for us, right? But when you get to know, uh, you know, the, the reality on the ground, and when your own life suffers from it, then you start waking up to this. And that's why these days, with the whole COVID tyranny, it's really a lot of blowback uh, from the system of genocide that's been operating. Now it's hitting us, right? But it's just the law of return. And maybe we can start learning, right? And changing. Yeah, because there's a guy in this country who just got released from prison. He was a pop star called Gary Glitter, friend of Jimmy Savile. And he was prolific. He went in, over to Vietnam, Cambodia, committed more crimes. And people have found out that they put him in this halfway house on the south coast here. This is big news in the UK. In this village where the kids are out playing and stuff like that. And um, it's, it's like these guys, you know, he served half his sentence... And it's like the whole justice system is upside down. You'd think that the people who committed crimes against kids will be punished the most severely, but they get slaps on the wrist. Right, because, I mean, in practice, child killing and the abuse of children is not a crime. Uh, Canada just lowered it. A few years ago, they lowered the mandatory sentencing for child rape to six months. Uh, it's, it's more of a crime in Canada. Yeah, it's what? more of a crime in Canada to own a marijuana plant three to five years than to rape a child three to six months. And oh, I was talking, I'm going to be sick. Well, I know. And, you know, the I've, no, I've known a lot of cops over the years. You know, they're, they're great sources of information because they see things on the inside and they're sickened by it too, right? But I remember I was in New Jersey once uh, giving a talk and a, a, a retired New York cop came to me and he said, you know, it was our policy when a kid's being raped, never to try prosecuting until it's happened 10 or 20 times. Uh, so I say, so raping a child once is, isn't a crime? No, because what's the chance of prosecution? It's a lot more difficult. And that's the only thing the district attorney looks at, whether you can prosecute the guy, right? So because it's so accepted, and don't forget, I mean, like genocide is a is a operational tool of church and state. It always has been. It's not a crime. Um, the Nuremberg uh, trials were uh, victor's justice. But had it been the other way around and Hitler had won, Churchill would have been on trial for bombing Dresden you know, as a war crime. So, I mean, like, it's all relative. Morality and everything, it's all about power, not about morality. And whoever holds the power, like, why did Time Magazine nominate Adolf Hitler as Man of the Year in 1938? Why did they nominate Jorge Bergoglio as Man of the Year a couple of years ago? Because, I mean, it, who's got the money and the power? They're legitimate. It's that simple. So it's waking up to what we're part of. And I think the good thing about this whole dark 
side of humanity is that it does begin to wake us up to, yeah, we've been responsible. We've paid for it. We've stood by while it's happened, but we can change that now. And that's really the purpose of a lot, our whole campaign. It's a bigger, you know, spiritual and, and existential issue about who are we, how could we have done this and how can we change to make sure it stops? It, it, it takes a real look in the mirror for each of us individually and as a group, right? Everyone in the chat is just going ballistic about what you just said about that that, that minimum um, sentencing. And uh, prior to that, a lot of people are wishing you a happy birthday as well. And happy birthday from me as well, Kevin. Thank you. We've done a lot of good work over Wish the I years. could be there to cut a cake with you all. <laughs> <laughs> so other news then, and it seems that the military industrial complex has got a vested interest in ever expanding conflicts. We've seen this China versus America thing heating up in the last week. And right. you've got a perspective about Canada, the British, and the Vatican's role in this, don't you? Well, of course, historically, they've, they've been at the heart of it. The Crown and British Crown and the Vatican are the tag team you know, genocide all over the world, but especially in North America. But what's happening now, as we've talked about on previous shows, is... Um, the Vatican Bank is underwriting a lot of the Chinese expansion. When Bergoglio, Pope Francis, was in Canada last July, he uh, signed an agreement in Prince Rupert, um, which gave almost a trillion dollars to in credit to the, uh, the Chinese to fund their takeover, their, the transportation infrastructure, the resources of North America, which they need crucially. Australia and Canada are really the front line of the Chinese expansion now. Um, and so you see the same thing happening all over the, the native, the disappearances of native people, especially in the West coast is going through the roof. And we know it's because of, um, uh, Chinese death squads that are working with the RCMP to wipe out the whole area in what's called the highway of tears. If you look on a map, it's between Prince Rupert and, uh, on the coast and Prince George in the interior of the province. That's a Chinese, uh, area now. I mean, they own it lock, stock and barrel. And um, what we've also found out, which is chilling, is that uh, in the area just east of Prince Rupert, the, where a lot of the native people have been going missing, um, there's two facilities, military, Chinese-run military facilities. They're hospitals where they do bioweapons research on live subjects. Guess who? Native people. Um, and it's part of what the Chinese translation, it comes out in English as techno-formation. It's... it's um, your worst nightmare from science fiction, cybernetic organisms. They're interfacing the human brain directly with machines. So you're creating a new generation of cybernetic warriors, soldiers who are just turned on and off. Literally, they, they can't sense anything. They can't think. They have no emotions except what's plugged into their, you know, um, their mind, which is now thanks to microchipping and, uh, and all that. Uh, is directly able to interface with any computer system they set up. So that research is going on now. A lot of the, you know, we got this over 15 years ago when we first began to investigate why so many Native families were disappearing in Vancouver and Northern BC. It's def definitely connected to it's Saskatchewan, where those uh, Native people were recently murdered. Um, the, the uranium is, and water uh, and the other resources are essential. Uh, for China right now, and it's all over northern Canada. So there's whole areas in northern Saskatchewan, British Columbia, where you're not allowed to go. It's roped off. I mean, it's fenced off. 
and it's guarded by Chinese soldiers. So, I mean, it's we have, you know, reporters who who covered all this. Uh, they have to go into hiding because their lives are threatened. Whenever we try to do anything on the West Coast, it gets stomped pretty quick, uh, including those assemblies we set up, those Coma Law Republic assemblies. They got wiped out almost immediately after it because it's it's the the front line of the Chinese expansion. And, you know, I'm pretty convinced that within two to three years, there's going to be out-and-out military conflict between China and America. Well, how um, far can they go, Kevin, with mutually assured destruction? I don't think they want a nuclear war. That doesn't help any of them. Uh, but they, they're playing brinkmanship to try to scare. I mean, look what's happened in America. Uh, China, China has funded both parties to rip themselves apart. Um, and they already own a third of the U.S. debt. They are very adept. They, you know, it's why the America lost in Vietnam. They weren't thinking like Sun Tzu in the early war. You know, why is America embroiled in a fight? in the Ukraine with Russia when China is the biggest enemy, right? It doesn't make any sense. And yet it's exactly what you need to do from China's point of view. Embroil your enemies, pick up the pieces. And I mean, it's in the wiping out of native people, the continuation of this genocide, it's just the next phase of this with China doing it now, right? You've had several questions come in. We've only got about 10 yep. minutes left. Let me get some of these over to you. So Lee Trainer wants to know, has Kevin ever read Monitas Secretas? It sounds familiar, but I, it doesn't ring a bell. Um, no. What does Kevin think about the Jesuits? Um, they are they have been the the military arm of the Vatican since Ignatius Loyola set them up. Um, the not just the the military wing, but the um, like for example in North America, they're the ones that that armed the Huron to fight the Iroquois, who are allied with the British. They've led that military genocide for centuries but they're also a big financial arm for the vatican uh citibank uh in america jesuit owned i mean um so you know you can trace their whole involvement especially with the british monarchy i mentioned last time that rio tinto mining company who were behind the massacre of those 10 cree indians in saskatchewan because the chief wouldn't sign the deal for the diamond mining um you know, it's the British crown and, and these guys are all linked at that level. Uh, I remember the uh, when I was in last time before I got evic uh, uh, expelled from England in 2011, I was at this protest, the Pope March in London. There was 20,000 of us. We just shut down the whole downtown area of London because Pope Benedict was in town to sign what was called the Hollywood Agreement with Elizabeth Windsor, which brought the Anglican Church back into the Catholic Church, right? It's really a big financial deal, the Bank of England and the Vatican Bank, which alone handles about 80% of the world's financial deposits, right? Uh, all that money is now going to China. And so uh, King Charles, so-called, and others, they're all part of that shift east. And as a result, I mean, we're talking about the same gang of criminals, of course, but uh, no, the, the Jesuits have been at, at the center of it for, for centuries. He's just provided a little bit more information on what his question was. Monitor Secretus is the Jesuit's secret handbook between themselves. Oh, yes, and I just at, didn't recognize at, the name. Arturo Souza's place at the top table of the New World Order. What do you think of that? Well, on the on the first one, um, the Jes the secret Jesuit oath. It's not that secret. It's it's known 
Jesuits talk openly about it. Um, so again, it's that old thing that it's not a crime to kill. Uh, it's the attitude that that the Pope, in quotes, um, has life and death power over everyone on the planet in their system. And um, they can kill anyone. You know, an example of this was, remember, Bergoglio was in Washington, D.C. in 2017. And he beatified, which in their mindset is you turn into a saint, this Californian missionary, Junipero Serra. He wiped out nearly 100,000 native men, women, and children on these Franciscan plantations in California. The Pope calls him a saint and says, quote, we are inspired by his zeal, unquote. So it's like anyone who isn't a Catholic doesn't have the right to live. Even, quote, liberals in the church like Bergoglio believe that, you know, that, you know, killing, uh, you know, like Thomas Aquinas said, kill their body to save their soul. That's justification for genocide, right? So all of this is just a continuation of the beast, you know, acting out its nature. Um Sorry, I forgot your second question. Atoro Sosas, the Black Pope. Yes. Thought, um, thoughts, on, thoughts on him. Well, I mean, again, these are like hand puppets, right? Don't forget, um, you know, uh, Bergoglio is the first Jesuit pope. Although, according to their rules, you're not allowed to go higher than a cardinal if you're a Jesuit. Um, and that's why, really, when Ratzinger was alive, it was. You know, whatever corporation does, you distract, you look here, then you look there, and you don't know where the power lies, right? Uh, so we found that, I found this when I was thrown out of the United Church, we were trying to sue them. The power in churches is diffused to many levels, so you can't, there's no ultimate accountability. You can't, where does the buck stop? It doesn't stop anywhere. So no one is ever held accountable in a system of mass murder. And um, it's the same with this. It's set up to do that. So... Black Pope, White Pope, I mean, we're talking about, they're not, they don't really hold the power anyway. It's the College of Cardinals and the money interest that they represent, right? What's the future of the Vatican then, of all this, you know, blowback from the mean exposes, one of the biggest pedophile rings in the history of the world? And do you think a new Pope is going to come in and, and, and try and um, rebrand? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the beast doesn't change its nature, it just changes its image. To fool. I mean, you know, what did what did Jesus say about the devil? He was the, the father of lies. His nature is to lie, right? And you know, the 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 guy who sits on the throne in Rome for many years, every centuries, every church except the Catholic Church always said the the Rome Roman papacy is the Antichrist. It's posing as Christ on earth. And popes say that over and over. I am Christ on earth. It, you know, so I mean like even the guy's name, Bergoglio, G-O-G, right in the middle of his name, Gog. Anyone who reads the Bible knows that Gog and Magog were the two earthly rulers whose job it was was to fool mankind prior to the re return of, of Satan and the final conflict. So, I mean, Gog is the servant of Satan. The guy has it right in his name. I mean, you know, these things are hidden in plain sight. And... Um, you know, they rely on uh, people's desire not to believe. And it, it's, it's, I think it was uh, Oscar Wilde who said, the problem is never lack of evidence. The problem is uh, not wanting to change your view of the world. Because if, if you say something that confirms someone's view of the world, they don't need proof. But if you say something that challenges that, all the proof in the world isn't going to convince them. They'll just say, I can't accept that, which is what we hear all the time about this stuff. But the Vatican is not going to change. If anything, it's going to get worse. Um, 
there's the power struggle going on now. There's there's a whole scramble for who's going to be the next. And I don't like using the word pope, okay, because it means papa or father. Like it's all part of the neurolinguistic programming. The bishop of Rome. Um, that there's going to be probably six or seven candidates. It's either going to be an African or a Chinese cardinal. That would make sense politically. Uh, there's two Chinese, John Han and Joseph Zen. Joseph Zen is the one who wants the ch- China to affiliate directly with the Vatican. It's the only country in the world where the government, Beijing, gets to appoint the, the, the cardinals and the bishops um, in, in China. There's two Africans who are possible. That's why you remember Bergoglio was just in Africa uh, meeting with these two guys, um, Peter Turkson and Robert Serra. They're these two kind of more conservative cardinals from Africa. But the one who's most likely going to get it is Pietro Perlin. He's the secretary of state. He's the one who went with Bergoglio to Prince Rupert to sign the deal with China. He's the closest guy in the Vatican to China. And uh, he's politically, he's likely going to be the next pope or the other candidate is a Canadian, French Canadian called Marc Oulette, who's tied in very closely with Bergoglio on the Ninth Circle sacrificial cult. In fact, we broke up one of the Ninth Circle ceremonies at his uh, Marie Rendemont Cathedral in Montreal. So he's kind of like that faction close to Bergoglio. But I think politically, it's likely the peril in the Secretary of State is going to do it. But again, it, it's, it represents the shift geopolitically to China and um you know, it, that's what's going on in the world. All the money, like three quarters of all the economic growth is in the Asia Pacific Rim. You know, in India, it, it, North America and Europe are just going down the toilet like England did after World War II. They're just, their economic hegemony is gone. And now um, it's all shifting to Asia. So follow the money. Follow, that's where the church goes, right? You said you broke up one of his ninth circle ceremonies for the viewers then. Could you explain what a ninth circle ceremony is and how did you go about breaking that up? Well, a lot of it, uh, murderbydecree.com, if you go to ITCCS updates, especially the latest one in January 31st, kind of describes some of what I've been talking about. But on there, uh, one of the things when, when our campaign got shut down in Canada after the official apology in 2008, and I got invited to Europe where we set up our tribunal and International Kamala Court that forced Bergoglio out of office or uh, Ratzinger out of office. Um, we uh, discovered there were a number of people who came forward to us, including uh, mostly from Holland, two Dutch women, Anne Marie van Bienberg and Tos Nienhaus. They're intergenerational survivors of this ninth circle, which is a satanic child sacrificial cult. It's gone back, goes back to at least the uh, late 1500s. There's Vatican records. Uh, of this thing. The ninth circle refers to in Dante's Inferno, uh, the, the ninth or lowest circle of hell is supposed to be where Satan resides, along with those who betray a sacred trust. So what you, you do in these ceremonies is they take children who's more, who has more sacred a trust than a young child, right? Especially to a quote, religious figure who's touted as some kind of humanitarian and uh, protector of children. They take the child, they ritually torture them rape them, kill them, drink their blood, and cannibalize their bodies. And it's part of the ritual that every pope and cardinal is expected to go through. One of the reasons they killed John uh, John Paul I in September 1978, he lasted 30 days in office, then he was found dead. Everybody who knew him was dead within a year. Um, all the magistrates who were investigating his death got blown up in car bombs. 
you know, so that he wouldn't be part of it. And he was also investigating the, the Vatican Bank and its ties with the, the mafia and this P2 uh, Masonic Lodge operating within the Vatican among the cardinals. So um, that's what happens if you don't play along. You know, if you if you know what I learned in a, in a less traumatic way as a United Church Protestant clergyman, where if you don't if you try to practice Christianity, you don't last long in the church. You know, you can talk about it, but you can't actually <laughs> put it into practice. And that so anyway, that's a long way to answer what the Ninth Circle is, but it's 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 ongoing. We broke up in Montreal because there were Montreal police who had been working with us, who notified us about this subterranean area in Marie Rendemont Cathedral. And we just told them that we took tip off these cops. They went in there, they panicked, and they all split, the people doing it. Because the last thing these jokers want is exposure. And Marc Ouellette was the one who was ultimately responsible for that. He's the cardinal who's now being considered as a candidate for the, you know, Bishop of Rome. But anyway, that's a short answer. Wow, absolutely mind-blowing, breathtaking, so well-researched, and you've put your own life on the line, Kevin. We can't thank you enough. Can you tell the viewers where they can find you and support you? Murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.org. You can write me angelfire101 at protonmail.com. And I just asked folks that on Sunday, we're having actions, protests at Catholic churches and Anglican churches all over the world, but especially February 26th, that's the day that William Coombs there, my brother, uh, was murdered after he saw Queen Elizabeth take those 10 children away. They killed him in St. Paul's Hospital, arsenic poisoning, according to his nurse, Chloe Kirker. That's the day they killed him, uh, 12 years ago, Sunday, February 26th. So we're going to be doing actions that day to remember William. And like I say, if you want to be part of that, please write me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Wow, good luck with all that, Kevin. Have a great birthday week and huge thank you thank for you. coming back. We, we, we'll we always love having you. Take care, my friend. See you. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. Right, bye-bye. What an absolutely fantastic, riveting guest. Time after time, Kevin comes on and he just blows us away. Just like Ryan Dawson is going to blow us away next week. Right, let's bring in Stephen Knight. And Siddharth Kara. Let's see if we can find Siddharth as well. I have found Siddharth. Here we go. You had a good rest, brother? Feeling good. Apart from Manchester United, a 1 0 down to dirty, dirty leads. I just have to throw that in there because I know Ash is a big fan. Oh, a bit of Northern rivalry going on there, yeah. isn't there? Bit of manufactured outrage. So you've got. All right, I'm going to toggle. Oh. What happened then? I thought we had the guest come in and a toggle. Hi, Siddhar. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Oh, fine, thank you. Stephen, how are you? Wonderful. Thank you very much for asking. I've um, been looking at your work in a lot of detail recently. I'm very, very pleased to see it getting a lot of traction and a lot of eyes and ears on your work. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, your background and, and what you do before we get into the specifics. Yes, thank you. And thank you for having me this evening. Um, I have been traveling the world uh, for the last 22 years researching uh, modern day slavery and child labor uh, in dozens of countries around the world um, in numerous different sectors and industries uh, from commercial sexual exploitation to uh, forced labor and agriculture 
uh, in seafood uh, and a range of different construction, um, different sectors. Um, my most recent work the last several years, which has culminated in my book, Cobalt Red, which came out last week, has been on cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Excellent. So um, maybe you can just explain a little bit about what, what brought you to Congo. Why did you end up there? Yeah, of course. Um, let's say six, seven years ago, um, I started hearing from colleagues in the field that, uh, oh, Siddharth, um, have you heard about cobalt mining in the Congo? It's in the batteries. The conditions are very uh, bleak um, under which people are mining. Uh, you know, maybe you should look into that. And um, it took me a little time to, to plan my first trip and to establish ground relationships so I could move into the mining areas uh, safely to conduct uh, undercover investigations and document testimonies. Uh, I took my first trip in 2018, and what I saw there um, uh, exceeded anything I could have imagined in terms of bleakness, degradation, exploitation of some of the poorest people in the world. Um, uh, and so then I started going back again and again and again to try to bring this truth out into the world. Okay, Sadath, I think we appear to have maybe have lost your video. Hopefully, we can we can work on getting that back, but we can we can hear you loud and clear. So maybe you can just take a moment to explain to us what what cobalt is exactly, and what what where would you find it? What is it used for? Yeah, I I can see myself on the screen, and I see you. Um, Oh, maybe it's just my issue then. Maybe people in the chat can help me out here. Can can we all see see Sadaf? Okay, so it's just just me. I can't see your your beautiful face anymore, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> we will we will work through it. Yeah, if you could just pick up that point and let us know uh, what cobalt is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you see, someone out there doesn't want us talking. Um, <laughs> so this is what you have to understand. Um, People like you, me, uh, the people watching this podcast, we cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Cobalt is used in every lithium-ion rechargeable battery, uh, uh, almost every lithium-ion rechargeable battery manufactured in the world today. So every smartphone, every tablet, every laptop, every rechargeable gadget, and crucially, almost every electric vehicle requires cobalt in the battery. So you and I can't have this conversation without cobalt. We can't get through a day without cobalt. And as the world transitions from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, cobalt is at the center uh, of this entire migration to the rechargeable economy. And about three fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in the Congo in utterly deplorable, degrading conditions that are akin to colonial slavery. Wow. So in terms of how um, how much of it is is mined in Congo, is that is that uh, basically an outcome of geography? Is it just that it's in abundance in that part of the world? Well, this is the enormous curse of the Congo, that it is blessed with resources um, beyond measure, resources that uh, one century after another, the foreign powers have come to pillage and plunder uh, while enslaving the local population to uh, generate massive profits at the top of the chain. And it just so happens that the Congo holds more cobalt reserves than the rest of the planet combined. And those reserves are actually just in a small part of the Congo in the southeast southeastern corner of the country. So 
our entire rechargeable economy and the future EV world is resting squarely on the shoulders of the cobalt reserves in the Congo. And I assume this is being exported, is it primarily to China, where it's then assembled in these components and then shipped to the rest of the Western world? Yes, that's exactly right. So China, China cornered the global cobalt market before anyone else knew what was happening. And now uh, Western Europe and the U.S. are trying to play catch up, but China dominates mining production on the ground uh, in the Congo. They are also the chief uh, consumers, buyers of all the child labor mined and peasant mined uh, uh, and slave mined cobalt that's coming out of the Congo. It all merges into the same supply chain before it ever leaves the Congo. And then it is predominantly exported to mainland China for uh, commercial grade refining. Last year, China produced roughly 80% of the world's refined cobalt supply. So they, they dominate, they control the supply chain from toxic pit in the Congo all the way up to the battery level. And then those batteries are sold to the consumer facing tech and EV companies. Wow. So t tell me the size of these mines that you see. I mean, how many, how many people in there would you see working? What sort of age ranges are we talking about? And what, what are the conditions? So some of these mining concessions are as big as a city. The biggest one is about the size of London. And that's just a concession that a Chinese company owns that they have gouged and, and, and ripped apart, digging out copper, cobalt, nickel, and other battery metals. Uh, you go into some of these big industrial mines. And what your viewies, viewers really need to understand is there's a story told at the top of the chain that there are no artisanal miners working in industrial mines. The supply chains are distinctive and it's all a fiction. It's all a fiction. When you get on the ground and you go into industrial mines, as I have, you see sometimes thousands, sometimes 10 or 15,000 human beings crammed inside giant uh, open pits, clanking and hammering against raw mountain of stone uh, to gather this cobalt ore and feed it up the chain to companies that are worth trillions. It's an utter hellscape, an utter hellscape, a scene you would imagine from centuries ago, the kind of old world servitude and abusive labor that you see in the Congo. And this, I mean, by artisanal, this is all manual by hand. Yes, this term artisanal kind of suggests some quaint kind of labor, but it's not that at all. It is a bleak, degrading, hard, brute labor Cobalt, incidentally, is toxic. It's toxic to touch. It's toxic to breathe. And so you have hundreds of thousands of some of the poorest people in the world, including tens of thousands of children, touching cobalt, breathing it in, day in and day out, young women with babies strapped to their backs, inhaling toxic cobalt dust day in and day out. Quite apart from the degrading labor abuse, there's just a massive public health catastrophe taking place in the Congo at the bottom of uh, our rechargeable economy supply chains. Every single person who lives there is being subjected to toxic exposure. I mean, in in, in a sort of similar fashion, a lot of the big um, companies have, have moved away from the sort of sweatshop conditions. You know, they've been checks and balances put in place, or at least that would be that's what we've been told. Is there something similar that these big corporations are being told on the ground in Congo in terms of what the working conditions should be? It's all a fiction. 
uh, and even in other industries, you know, there's there's these marketing teams at the top of the chain that proclaim that conditions are better. They're not so bad. And the assumption is who's going to get down there, find the truth and bring it to the world's attention. And that's particularly true of the Congo, because it is very hard to get there. And it is exceptionally different, difficult and dangerous to get into mining areas. The companies at the top of the chain, I believe, are all too aware of what the conditions are at the bottom. They make these proclamations that their supply chains are fully audited, that there is no child labor or forced labor or artisanal labor in their supply chains. And you and I are meant to just carry on with our consumer lifestyles and not worry about it. But the truth is the opposite. And the voices of the Congolese people, the ones that I bring to the world in Cobalt Red, will tell you the truth. They tell you the truth that they experience every day, artisanal cobalt, all of it, child labor cobalt, all of it flows into the formal supply chain. And by the time that cobalt leaves the Congo, it is impossible to disaggregate what was industrially mined and what was mined by a child. So you've done some wonderful expository work on this, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading your book on it. And I did see some of the video footage you were able to obtain yourself of just rows and rows and rows and rows of body working away in this in pit in what, you know, appears to be completely torrid conditions. And I, it made me wonder as well, did you were you met with any resistance there? Were there anybody keeping an eye out? Because obviously it feels like a lot of, a lot of this, or as much as possible, needs to be shielded away from recordings uh, and an expo uh, expository uh, investigation the big the big tech and ev companies uh don't want the secret coming out you know it it they're in a scramble to sell us the gadgets to sell us evs and to uh, book their quarterly profits uh and child labor and forced labor and environmental destruction by mining companies in the congo runs counter to that narrative um, so as a consequence, it is very difficult to get into that area. It's heavily militarized, heavily secured. There are roving militias. It's very dangerous. And if you're seen poking around, trying to uncover the truth, uh, very grim things can happen. And I had more than one uh, very dangerous encounter, a couple where it could have just gone the wrong way. And you and I wouldn't be speaking here because the secret is not meant to get out. The truth is not meant to get out. That suffering and degradation is meant to remain shrouded in darkness for as long as possible. So it, it is dangerous. And I had to rely very much on the trust and faith of ground teams um, to gain access to mining areas, to speak with artisanal miners in their communities. Uh, and it was very much a, a process of building trust and trying to be as careful as possible so as not to put anyone in danger. So did you actually go into this situation with the open persona of I am investigating, I'm a journalist, I am asking questions about this specific mining operation? The context, it depends on the context. So if I were meeting with a government official or interviewing a family um, of artisanal miners, I said who I was. Uh, I'm a researcher from the United States uh, uh, wanting to understand the conditions of cobalt mining. Um, when I went to speak to uh, the traders and buyers buying cobalt, or maybe uh, people uh, more closely tied to the mining supply chain. Um, then I was someone looking to get into the mineral trade. There are actually a lot of Indians, and I'm of Indian descent, a lot of Indians in the Congo. Many have come as laborers. Some have come as mineral traders. Uh, uh, so I was able to blend in more easily. So if I go up to, you know, the there are these entire marketplaces 
where artisanal cobalt is bought by intermediaries and then sold to uh, industrial mining companies. So if I were to go to this marketplace and start talking to these intermediaries and say, well, I'm a researcher, conversation over. Not only that, I'd probably get pointed in the direction of uh, some army guy. Uh, so in that case, I was uh, a mineral trader looking to get get into the business uh, in order to sort of start having conversations. Uh, but anything else, um, when I was talking with a family, a child, a mother, a father who may have suffered injury or worse, um, I, I was myself uh, and because that's also a function of establishing trust and faith with people. Okay, so a lot of plate spinning there. Um, so, I mean... It seems obvious, but I need to ask the question anyway. I mean, a place like this is a recipe for disaster in terms of health, safety, uh, things like that. Were you, were you, did you hear any stories of serious injury or death? Every single day. Hmm. Every day, someone is suffering grievous injury or death for our cobalt. Um, artisanal miners work in exceptionally hazardous conditions. They dig by hand with pickaxes, shovels, stretches of rebar. Remember, it's all toxic, everything they're breathing. And the consequences of that will be born in the years to come. Uh, but people suffer shattered legs, shattered spines from pit wall collapses uh, or from tumbling down a pit wall. And then their lives are over. You know, if that happens to the father of a family, the, it's the three kids that have to come and then replace that lost income. And invariably, they'll suffer the same injury. But the worst, the worst is the tunnel collapses. So um, there are about 15 or so thousand, at least, tunnels that have been dug by hand by artisanal miners. And the reason they dig tunnels is there are slightly higher grades of cobalt ore 20, 30, 40 meters below the surface. If you dig at the surface, the ore you get, you might make a dollar or two for the day. 10 hours of backbreaking, grueling, hazardous work. You might get a dollar or two. The ore further down is a higher grade, so you earn a little more. You might get $5. So there's this drive to try to earn what to them is two or three times the income in a day. The tunnels are about a meter in diameter. They shimmy down. These are hand dug by teenage boys and men. It requires a lot of strength. And then they find, when they find a vein of cobalt, they follow it along, tunneling along the way. It's crouched underground, oftentimes 24 hours at a time. These tunnels collapse every week. And whoever's in there is buried alive. And that's the risk they take to try to get that $5. And they're feeding that cobalt up the chain. So I met mothers who had lost a son, uh, women who had lost a husband, fathers who had lost a son to these tunnel collapses. It happens all the time. And there's just no accounting up the chain. These glitzy tech companies talking about the most horrid death you can imagine, being buried alive under a crush of rock and earth, that this is your final moment on earth, and that that's the suffering and degradation that's inside all these batteries. And they don't want that truth coming out, but that's the purpose of Cobalt Red and the purpose of these other uh, efforts to bring this truth to the world so that these companies will be held accountable for this human destruction at the bottom of their supply chains. Wow, yeah, so li they're literally incentivizing risk to life um i mean I, I know you've been very clear to say this material this cobalt is found in all forms of our technology you're not you're not singling out any particular uh, brand H however one that kind of 
sticks out a little bit is Tesla. Obviously, they are all about uh, electric batteries. That's integral to their business. And obviously, Elon Musk is someone who's very vocal about all things Tesla, including criticism, uh, praise. And I was just wondering, he he must have heard you speak that you spoke on Joe Rogan. He must be aware uh, of this issue. Has he said anything publicly about it to your to your mind? Not not to my knowledge. Um, I mean, what what can they say? I mean, what, what, you know, it's silence that they need. Uh, It's, it's keeping this all buried, keeping this totality of human misery buried. That's what they need. That's what they're relying on. So there's nothing to say other than we acknowledge what's happening. Okay. Well then what are we going to do about it? So that they don't want to move in that direction as of yet. My hope is that there'll be a public outcry. There'll be a demand to account for this human misery at the bottom of these supply chains. And, and we mustn't forget, it's not just the human destruction, which is beyond measure, but there's a massive destruction of the environment in the Congo. These mines, remember I told you the biggest one is about the size of London. They've clear cut millions of trees. These mining companies dump their toxic effluents into the water, into the air, into the dirt, all around the mining provinces. They they behave in ways they never would in their home country. But it's okay to treat the Congo like a toxic dumping ground. So this EV movement, this green energy movement, which is important, is being built on the, uh, uh, as a, is causing the destruction of the environment in the Congo. And that's an utter hypocrisy. Why is it that we should preserve our environment at the expense of theirs? And then, of course, facilitate our daily lives by destroying their lives. And you and I have been made unwitting participants in this grotesquerie. We we don't, you know, you and I buy a smartphone. We have no intention of contributing to the death of children in the Congo. You and I buy an, I, an EV. We have no intention of contributing to the destruction of the environment in the Congo. And yet we're forced to because these companies have not seen fit to sort out their supply chains and ensure the dignity of the people in the Congo and this and, and the protection of their environment. I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is, but is this material so essential now that there is just no way to ethically obtain or source as a consumer uh, these electronic items? As of today, yes, I think that's true. Uh, any Any company that makes the claim that their smartphone or tablet or or whatever, rechargeable gadget and car, that the cobalt in it is clean, is either dealing in falsehood or recklessly ignorant of the truth. Because remember, we said almost three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is coming from the Congo. So there's not enough other cobalt anywhere else to meet the demand, especially for the big tech and EV companies. So it's all coming from the Congo, and it's all mixed before it ever leaves the country, the child labor, the forced labor, the the hazardous labor, the death, the misery, the destruction, the environmental contamination, it's all blended together into one supply before it ever leaves the country. It's really really quite striking how far and wide this is spread in the Congo, isn't it? I was just looking at some satellite images, I think via ABC News, and it's shown uh, an image of the Congo in 2017, I believe, then contrasted that with uh, 2022. And you could see how much this mining industry has completely reshaped uh, the landscape. I mean, it it feels like 
in terms of an environmental perspective, there is not really much going back from that now. No, it's done. The destruction is done. It's like when you kill someone, they're not coming back. When you gouge out an entire countryside and clear cut millions of trees to make place for behemoth pit mines, it, the damage is done. And I, there, there are some fascinating time-lapse images that I've, I've seen as well. Going back even a little further before the cobalt crush, starting in like 2010, 12. And then you compare them to today and you see the utter destruction of that part of the Congo. Cities like Lubumbashi, Likasi, Kolowezi, Fungarume, Kambov, everything in between. Um, you just trace this little arc along that region of the Congo and you just see across time mines getting bigger and bigger, environment being destroyed. What you can't see is, of course, the toxic pollution that these mining companies are doing in that part of the Congo. But the other consequence is there were people living there. You know, if you see the 2017 photo and then the 2022 photo, that big blob of brown that's grown, there were people who were living there. All those people are displaced. Now they can't survive. Their homes are gone. They have no place to live. Uh, and there's nothing else to do. So they have to scramble back into those mines to try to dig and earn that dollar or two a day. Where does the book start with you? Whose responsibility is this? Is it the big Western companies that are outsourcing this? Is it the people on the ground in the Congo that have the responsibility to protect the workers? Is it is it China? Where would you say the book starts? Demand for cobalt starts at the top of the chain, and that's where the solutions have to start. No. No one put a gun to the head of these tech companies and EV companies and said, you must use cobalt. They're using cobalt. They're, they have inordinate, immense, insatiable demand for cobalt. And so everything that's happening down the chain as a consequence only exists because of the demand at the top. So, yes, there are bad actors in the Congo. There are corrupt Chinese mining companies. There's corrupt governance locally. All of that is a consequence of the demand that start st has started at the top. And so that's where the solutions need to start. So those companies, they all, incidentally, they all say their supply chains are clean, that they're 100% audited down to the mining level, that there's no child labor cobalt in their supply chains. None of that's true. So really what they simply need to do is maintain the commitments they're already proclaiming to the broader community, to the global community. Put teams on the ground. I never, in all my trips to the Congo, ever saw anyone who worked for any of these companies walking around to try and figure out where's our cobalt coming from? How do we fix this problem? None of them have ever sent teams there to understand their supply chains, to understand the truth of their supply chains. They just point the finger down the supply chain at the next company down. That company points its finger downstream and you keep getting fingers pointing down until the last finger is pointed at a child caked in toxic filth up to their armpits, in a pit, scrounging out for cobalt. No one's accepting responsibility for that child. And so, of course, horrible things are happening. Yeah, that's a that's a very difficult image to digest, uh, for sure. Um, you, you said there that, I mean, these companies are choosing to use this material, which, which makes me wonder, is there an alternative? Are they using this material because there is nothing else they can use? It's absolutely essential. Or are they only using this material because they know that you can get it on the back of cheap labor? So cobalt is 
is used in rechargeable batteries because it allows those batteries to maintain uh, high energy density and thermal stability. So what does that mean? That means you don't have to plug in as much. The battery will hold more charge and it won't overheat and catch on fire. That's what cobalt does at the simplest level for a battery. And of course, that's what we want, don't we? We want our batteries to last as long as possible, especially our electric car batteries, because we don't have to plug in twice when we're driving around town. Uh, and we certainly don't want the battery to catch on fire. So that's what cobalt does. Now, there are absolutely uh, battery chemistries that are being developed and have been developed that don't use cobalt. You have to you have to horse trade a little bit like power density and uh, uh, and stability when you don't use cobalt. Uh, uh, but the writing is on the wall, and that's why alternate chemistries are being uh, developed, because the scramble, the cobalt reserves that we have, probably have another two decades left to run. And then, and then that's it. So there'll need to be alternatives uh, to cobalt developed, and there, and there will be, I'm sure, um, uh, good replacements. But let's say, let's say tomorrow. There was a perfectly uh, equal replacement to the battery performance that did not require cobalt. And so every tech company and EV company stopped using cobalt tomorrow. That would do nothing to repair the destruction that's taken place the last 12 years. Those lives aren't coming back. The injuries aren't going to be healed. The environment is suddenly not going to be repaired. So even if it all stopped tomorrow, there is so much harm, so much violence that's been inflicted on the Congo that needs to be repaired. And that gets you back to the top of the chain where the demand started. I mean, so you've said the, the majority of cobalt comes from the Congo. That that's I'm not sure what percentage you said, but it makes me wonder where, where are the other areas of the planet is coming from? And I, I imagine or at least hope the conditions there are at least a, a lot different. Yeah, so it's almost three-fourths of the world's supply last year of uh, cobalt production was in the Congo. And then you have a handful of countries where it's like 2%, 3%, 2%, uh, places like Australia, Canada, Morocco, Russia. Um, uh, so no one else is even close to double digits in, mm -hmm. in terms of contribution. Uh, it's Congo and then a bunch of other little bits and pieces. Now, I'm sure I've not gone to the Australian cobalt mines to see what conditions are like. I'm sure they're perfectly fine. The uh, same with Canada and so on. But you have to bear in mind again that the cobalt that's coming from Australia could very well be refined in the same batch as the cobalt that's come from the Congo at the refinery in China. And so once again, you can't disaggregate. Hmm. What came from where? Yeah, that is a worry. And I think, I mean, you've done a lot, your expository work uh, has, has been highlighted and I'm not even sure I'd ever heard of the word cobalt until I saw your, your, you on Joe Rogan exposing this. And has any, have you had any, any sort of official response from any government entities, either in the Congo, in the West, anyone uh, official that, that works for any of these companies? <laughs> My phone lines are open. I mean, my email is open. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm not surprised that I haven't had uh, engagement uh, because, again, this this truth is what they don't want. They didn't want this truth to be revealed uh, because then it's a problem that has to be dealt with. And pause for a moment and and reflect on the fact that for some reason it was deemed OK 
to carry on treating the people of Central Africa in this way and to treat their environment in this way. Why is that? Why, why was it deemed okay all this time? No, they knew what was happening on the ground and yet didn't see fit that that needed to be addressed, that they needed to send even a team of five people to go and see what's happening and figure out how to stop it, how to improve it, because they're not worth the same as you and I, is the answer. I mean, full stop. That's been the answer for centuries, right? Deep in the back of the capitalist mind, deep in the back of the tech industry king is the idea that they're not worth the same as us. And eventually, of course, there has to be a community of conscience. Uh, perhaps people listening today will be a part of a new movement, just as there have been movements in the past in Africa, in the heart of Africa, in that too, in Congo, to say this, this kind of tyranny and degradation of these people is not acceptable and we won't allow it to, to persist in our civilization. And so that movement will come as the voices of the Congolese people reach out into the world. Any company, to answer your question directly, any company that wants to go see where their cobalt comes from, I will take you there. I will take you. I will show you. This is where your cobalt comes from. Now let's fix this problem. Uh, Rich, I sincerely hope somebody takes you up on that, that offer for sure. Um, we've had a question in the chat. Ray J has asked, where does all the cobalt go after processing in China? Is it mostly to the West? I'm not sure if you know. So uh, about 80% of the world's supply of refined cobalt last year came from China. It then goes to battery manufacturers. And the, the big six are based in China, Japan, and South Korea. Um, uh, and they produced last year 86% of the world's lithium-ion rechargeable batteries. Uh, that's uh, for all the gadgets and, and EVs. The biggest one is a company called CATL, Contemporary Amperax Technology Limited. Uh, it's a Chinese company, and they produced one-third of the world's lithium-ion rechargeable batteries last year. Uh, the other companies are BYD, also in China, then uh, SK Technologies, LG Chem, Panasonic, um, uh, uh, producing the world's uh, batteries. Those batteries are then sold uh, uh, to tech and EV companies to put in the phones and cars. I wonder as well, I mean, is there some sort of cultural shift needed in the West in terms of how, and I don't throw this word around often, but privilege in terms of how many gadgets we have, what we enjoy as possessions, materials, things like that. So it, it, it strikes me as, a, I suppose you could draw a comparison with factory farming and our love of meat consumption. I think, you know, to have meat as often as we want and in the quantities we want, that's going to lead to animal rights violations. And I think if we want all these materials for our gadgets in the, in the way we do, that can only be achieved through someone somewhere, unfortunately, uh, suffering exploitation. I think as consumers, you know, we can't solve the problem, you know, of what's happening at the bottom of cobalt supply chains, but we can think long and hard about our consumption habits. Um, do we need the latest phone every year? Uh, do we need the newest gadget uh, uh, every time a new model comes out? Uh, I think we've also been marketed this compulsion to consume, to keep getting the latest everything. Oh, the camera's a little better this year. And it's, you know, what? Oh, I have to have that. Um, so, it, you know, it's not just that we're sitting back consuming for no good reason. There's massive marketing campaigns associated with making us want to buy the latest gadget. And so then that just escalates demand. And 
what does that mean in terms of cobalt? It means more kids, more suffering, more destruction to feed that cobalt up the chain. And I think when it comes to electric vehicles, I think it's very important to pursue climate sustainability goals, no question, but it cannot come at the expense of the people and environment of the Congo. Uh, in the chat, Jake Ford has said, uh, an alternative to cobalt must have been researched. What has been suggested? Yeah, so there are a couple, uh, as we discussed, there's a, there are alternate battery chemistries being produced. Um, the In terms of uh, consumer electronics, nothing really. All the smartphones and tablets, laptops have cobalt in the batteries. Some EV models on the market now do not have cobalt. Uh, the main alternate battery that's being used, and I think Tesla uses it primarily in um, some of their models made in China, is lithium iron phosphate. Uh, so that's a cobalt-free battery. Uh, but lithium mining is another entire, it doesn't necessarily mean it's clean. Lithium mining is replete with human rights and environmental abuses as well. But as we said, even if cobalt was not used in anything as of tomorrow, that does nothing to repair the immense human rights uh, abuses and environmental destruction that's taken place for the last 12 years, feeding cobalt up the chain. I mean, it's remarkable, really, that this is all playing out in the landscape of an African country, given the history and given how, how you would imagine the West would be far more sensitive to exploitation and forms. I mean, this is almost like a form of sort of corporate imperialism in a way. I mean, it, 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 there's something slightly more sinister about all this when you put it into that context, isn't there? That's right. You'd, you'd think uh, we wouldn't be in an era where the people and resources of Africa are still being pillaged as if it's colonial times. And yet instead of nation states, it's now corporate supply chains. It's just more refined, a little more snazzy, a little more shiny and adorned with proclamations of adherence to human rights norms and global international principles of zero tolerance policies on child labor and all this puffery. That's just that it's nothing more than hot air because it doesn't translate into anything meaningful on the ground in the Congo. The Congo, I don't think there's been a patch of earth that's been more severely exploited than the Congo. I mean, your, your listeners, you've all in college read Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And that was inspired by the first Congo pillage under King Leopold. And what's extraordinary is it related to automobiles. So King Leopold got his hands on the Congo in 1885, the same year that Carl Benz invented a car with an internal combustion engine. Three years later, a chap named Dunlop invented a rubber tire. And now those cars could really start driving and the scramble was on. And it just so happened that Leopold's Congo had one of the largest rubber tree rainforests in the world. He terrorized, enslaved, tortured, mutilated, and murdered the Congolese people to feed rubber up the chain for the first car revolution. And now, more than a century later, we're having a new automobile revolution, electric vehicles. Guess who has more of the valuable resource than anyone else? That's Congo again. Well, instead of a Belgian king, now it's big tech companies and EV companies, but it's the same racket. It's the same racket, just a different century. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's wonderful that you've managed to shine a light on this and bring it into the public consciousness as well. But we're always incredibly well aware of the human rights violations that occurred in China, for instance, that supply our clothing, our plastics, anything. And it feels like maybe we've reached the point of no return with China, that we're so reliable on their, their cheap labor uh, to function 
that there is there is practically nothing we can do to convince them to uh, behave in a way that's more conducive to human rights. Have, have we reached the point of no return here? I don't think so. I, I think we've reached a point of decision making, uh, of critical decision making. And you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I have seen it on the ground. They have no Chinese mining companies in the Congo. There is nothing by way of concern for human rights or environmental protection. It's just a mad scramble to get the resource out of the ground and out of the country and up the chain into batteries. Full stop. I mean, the people of the Congo are either in the way or fit to be slaves as far as this industry is concerned. Uh, it's all about the loot, which in this case is cobalt. So we have a decision to make in the West. You know, do we participate in that kind of economy, in that kind of moral statement? Or, or do we now start to make decisions around uh, what kind of world we want to promote and live in and, and, and establish alternate supply chains, decent and dignified supply chains. The problem is, as you rightfully note, it's all wound up in China now. And so it's not that easy to disentangle. I think COVID has started some of that process about disintermediating China from some of these supply chains because the world realized, wait, if China shuts down, we're stuck. Uh, and so you saw, for instance, Apple has recently moved a lot of its iPhone production out of China and into India for that reason. Uh, I think it's more logistics than human rights, but uh, that migration is important. And I, I, we simply have to make a statement uh, as a culture, as, as the West. Uh, do we continue supporting and doing business with a state that has such, to put it charitably, radically different norms of human rights uh, uh, than we do. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more I'd love than to, you know, like you say, disentangle from China and make a, an ethical and moral uh, objection to the way they behave. But it is, is it is it really a case of that we need them more than they need us now and they can basically do whatever they want and we're, we're powerless, not just from a supply and demand standpoint, but even militarily, if you were to take it to the extreme, it just feels, I appreciate and being very pessimistic here, that there is not an awful lot we can do. Well, it, it would cause it would there would be a period of pain for yeah. sure. <laughs> There's no, no way around that. And the, the, the uh, severity of that pain, you know, it could be quite, quite severe. I mean, they own so much of Western debt. Uh, they're at the bottom of so many supply chains, manufacturing tech and so on. Uh, and I think that's why there's this sort of delicate dance that's played between China and the West that, you know, they push, we push, they push, they float a balloon, we shoot it down. <laughs> you know, this, there's this back and forth that's going on. But, you know, they need us to consume all their stuff that they're manufacturing. We need them to make it for cheap. And so there's this kind of unholy tryst that exists right now. I, I appreciate that it won't come easy, but I think at a certain point, courageous leaders need to take a stand because where are we headed otherwise yeah uh, fred's asked in the chat why can't conditions be improved in the congo i assume so yeah yeah they can be the question is why haven't they been uh they can be absolutely tomorrow if the companies at the top of the chain decided that it was a priority let me tell you 80% of the harm that's caused on a daily basis could be eliminated very easily. A lot of families have to bring children to work instead of keeping them in school because they're only earning that dollar or two a day for 10 hours of grueling labor. 
And that's barely enough to survive. It's the difference between eating or not. So they need children to come also earn that dollar or two for the family to survive. If these individuals were paid a basic, fixed daily wage of, say, $10, $15 a day, okay, a day, that's enough for a family to survive, for kids to stay in school, to have clothes, books, and so on. Would that difference in money, two versus 10, bankrupt Apple or Tesla or these companies? Of course not. They wouldn't even notice it. No one in the chain would notice it. Cobalt's toxic, right? We talked about that. All each person needs is some basic PPE. Yeah, you wouldn't Gloves. be a lot to ask. It's not that expensive. It's a one-time expense. It's not that much to ask. And yet the, the titans at the top of the chain don't feel the Congolese people are worth some masks and gloves and boots uh, just to prevent toxic exposure each day. A lot of harm would be eliminated with just some basic, basic changes that wouldn't even cost that much money. I suppose what's incredibly frustrating for the, the consumer listening to this, and I think Imogen in the chats just kind of summarized this in her question. She said, uh, as a vegan, she doesn't buy animal products because she doesn't believe they're ethical. Uh, so she tries to be consistent. And a question is, so what can we do? Is cobalt in anything electric or is it just primarily as batteries only, I assume, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's in the batteries. And right now, as a consumer, it's very difficult to avoid blood cobalt from the Congo. Full stop. You buy a smartphone, it's probably got blood cobalt from the Congo. I mean, even anything rechargeable, an e-scooter, an e-bike, anything that you plug in probably has cobalt in the battery because they're all lithium ion variants uh, and chemistries right now. Um, so it shouldn't be up to the consumer, though, to solve this problem. It's up to the company. So what we need to do is, well, maybe we don't upgrade every year. Maybe we just sit back and start a movement, start pressuring companies and policymakers to sort this issue out. I mean, I just it's it's appalling and utterly inexplicable that the people of the Congo, some of the poorest people in the world, can be treated this way day in and day out. Uh, without it being addressed. I mean, just to keep, just to refocus back on the human element there and the conditions. I mean, you said that there are children there as well, and there, there are thousands and thousands of people working in these mines. Would you ever find women working there as well? Yes, absolutely. Women, girls, women with babies on their backs, teenage girls with babies on their backs. They're all in these pits, in these tunnels, in these trenches, digging, scrounging, scraping. Um, you know, I've, sh I've shared quite a few photos on my Twitter stream at Siddharth Kara. People want to see visually what, what, what some of the conditions look like to see the children, see women, see girls and babies um, in these toxic pits, digging for cobalt every day. Uh, and then, of course, you know, in the book, I share the voices of those people and how they tell their truth to the world that can't see them, doesn't even think they exist. So there's absolutely children, children as young as six. Now, the kinds of work they do will vary by age. You know, a six-year-old can't be a part of tunnel digging because it requires too much strength. So that's teenage boys and grown men. But there's a rinsing and sieving process that young children do to separate dirt from the cobalt stone, usually in toxic pools of water. I mean, putrid, toxic pools of water. They'll take a sieve to separate cobalt pebbles from the dirt and load those pebbles into the sack. They spend all day doing that, and that sack gets sold for a dollar or maybe $2. And they're up to their knees or up to their waist in completely toxic water. Now, another thing you need to know is that cobalt 
it never appears by itself in nature. It's usually bound to copper and nickel in a, in a stone, in an ore body. And in the Congo, that ore body often contains trace amounts of radioactive uranium. So people are actually suffering low-grade radiation exposure. I had some women uh, who were doing rinsing at a lake. Um, and this lake, it was so toxic and putrid. And they said the mosquitoes won't even bite, bite us anymore because they know they're, they're just filled with uh, exposure to such heavy toxicity. Uh, it's just the whole horror show that's happening there is unimaginable. Yeah, horror shows, right. And I suppose that there's a blend there of obviously exploitation, slavery, um, child exploitation. There's a, there's a women's rights issue there, obviously. So I suppose my question is, where, where are the big human rights organizations? Where, where, I mean, I'm talking like the UN, Amnesty International, people like that. Are, are they banging the drum in any noticeable way that you're aware of? You know, Amnesty Amnesty has been down in the Congo. They issued a report back in 2016 uh, that was one of the first NGO reports about how deplorable the conditions are. Uh, there are not many big NGOs operating the Congo. The primary reason is because of the, uh, the risk factor. It's hmm. very violent there. You know, it's very dangerous to have staff down there operating uh, uh, consistently uh, in that part, of, especially in the mining provinces, because they're heavily militarized. And you just can't go walking around and poking around there without getting uh, very negative attention. So there are not too, too many big NGOs operating there, not too many big aid agencies operating there. Um, and honestly, this is the first book. The Cobalt Red is the first book that's ever brought this story to the world because it's so difficult getting this truth and because it's been shrouded and kept secret uh, for all these years. And my hope is that as people read the book, hear the voices, understand the truth and the realities that this will stimulate and catalyze more efforts to get there, to find truth, to bring it to the world, and to then uh, uh, push a movement forward that will address these injustices. With with your research and you, you speaking to the families and, and getting time with the workers, what, what are the typical shift patterns there? How what can they ex how long can they expect to work in a, in a single day if they they well I, I wanted to say opt in for this, but it, it seems like it's it's that's the wrong term. No, there's no opt in. There's nothing else to do. I yeah. mean, you you very rightly pointed out that ABC story that came out today showing some time lapse images, um, and I had one in. Um, uh, the Guardian a few years ago, also showing time-lapse images. As the mines just double in size, who do you think was living on that land? The people. And where are they living now? Nowhere. There, there's nothing, no place to go. There's nothing else to do. Mining has taken over. And so all they can do is try to scramble, try to get that dollar or two a day and, and undertake immense risk, immense hazard. Uh, in order to do so. So what's a day like? Many people work in family units, uh, uh, people they trust. And so people will be up by before dawn. Uh, they may have to walk quite a distance uh, to get to a, a mining area, to an industrial mine or a large artisanal mining area. And then they dig and a family will subdivide the tasks. So the stronger males, adult males, and maybe teenage boys We'll be digging a trench, maybe five, 15 uh, meters deep, uh, gathering with shovels, the ore, filling that sh uh, 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 material into a sack 
and younger children or mothers will drag that sack over to that toxic rinsing pool I told you about because it's all mud and stone. Okay. So then they'll stand, you know, up to their waist in this coppery, putrid, toxic sludge of water and sieve up and down the dirt from the stone. And then there'll just be stones left in the sieve and then they'll load that in the sack. And you have to go through a few cycles of that to get one full sack of just cobalt stone. And that will take the better part of a day for a family to fill maybe two sacks, three sacks. And then they take it to the traders who will pay them a couple of dollars each for that full sack. So maybe they're making as a family six, seven, eight dollars in a day uh, for the family unit of, say, five people. And then that trader sells it to the industrial mine. They'll never admit it, that they're buying it, the industrial mining, but they're all buying it. Where's the cobalt going otherwise? You see, every company at the top of the chain will say, there's no artisanal cobalt in my supply chain. Well, if that's true of all of them, then where is the production of these hundreds of thousands of Congolese people going? They're not digging it for fun. It's not going to Mars. It all goes into the formal supply chain because demand is so far outstripping supply. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredibly worrying, especially with reference to those satellite pictures, when you see how much it's ravished the land, obviously, it's, it's, it's destroyed houses and homes. And, and um, obviously, it's a finite resource. And, uh, you know, the humanitarian aspect aside and the, the environmental impact aside, could this lead to some sort of huge migration crisis, a knock-on effect to neighboring countries because the, the entire economy and land has been completely ravished by this cobalt mining? You know, I write in Cobalt Red, one of the first meetings I had on my first trip was with some university students in a town called Lubumbashi. And one of them said something to me that really, it, it stuck stuck with me. So I, I wrote about it and it stuck, stuck with me to this day. She said, listen, everyone's talking about the human rights catastrophe happening now and the environmental destruction happening now, which is important. What's no, what no one's talking about, she said, is the fact that in 20 or 30 years, all this all these minerals will be gone at the, at the rate the mining companies, at the rate the demand is pulling them out of the ground. It's all going to be gone. And she said, in that time, Congo, Congo's population will probably double. Two generations down. Uh, so you'll have 100 to 200 million people in the Congo with nothing but valueless dirt under their feet. And then what happens was her point. And I thought, you're right. That's a disaster. To your point, this is this is a humanitarian disaster now, and it's a slow train wreck of an even bigger humanitarian disaster coming. So while all these companies at the top of the chain are are banking money, boosting profits every quarter, paying themselves big bonuses and selling us all this stuff along the way, it's at the cost of completely depleting and destroying an entire population of people who will ultimately, at the end of this, be left with absolutely nothing to show for it but dirt and suffering and poverty and starvation. And what happens then, we can only imagine the scale of how bad it's going to be for the people living there. Yeah, it's not, it's not, um, yeah, I'm not optimistic about that at all. And I, I suppose in, in a way, that, like you mentioned there about all these profits and the, the, the money-making, you know, capitalist scheme, um, it, there must be a lot of people very annoyed about you poking at this and, and highlighting it. And I think uh, Ray J summed it up well in the chat. His question is, have your views and book been suppressed in any way noticeable? 
Well, the book came out uh, eight days ago. So, um, so far, I haven't noticed anything. Um, there has been a lot of interest in the book, which is good. It's, it means a lot to me on behalf of the people of the Congo. Um, uh, every time I interviewed a family, you know, a mother who had lost a child, uh, a father who had lost a son, uh, every time I interviewed people, I started by making them a promise, which is I'm here. I want to bring, I will do everything I can to bring your voice to the world. People rely on your misery every day and they don't know you exist. And the people in the Congo are crying out into an abyss. No one's hearing them. So for me, Cobalt Red was uh, a, pl a pledge fulfilled that I will do everything in my power to bring their voices to the world. It's not for me to speak for them. It's not for me to tell the world what needs to happen and what needs to be done or even what's happening now. The Congolese people can speak for themselves. And so um, the interest in the book, the fact that you and I are having this conversation that you invited me on and that others have invited me to talk uh, means that the world is learning the truth. The Congolese voices are being heard. And the more that happens, I think it's inevitable. There'll be no way to shut this down anymore. People will learn and be moved and motivated and stirred in their hearts to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can sense the empathy you have, and every time we talk about the the human aspect of it, aspects of it, rather, we, you can hear the the emotion in your voice. This obviously means a great deal to you. These people mean a great deal to you, and I, I just wondered, did that make it especially difficult for you to exist in that world for a time and, and speak to them and, and hear what they had to say? Yeah, it's uh, you know, Stephen, it's. Uh, it's it's really hard. The the pain that I saw, like the 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 quantum of human misery, the torment, the suffering, uh, the the number of mothers who just were pounding their chests in grief because their twelve year old son had been buried alive. Um, you know, fathers who told me what it was like to hold their dead child's body in their arms. Uh, praying that, please open your eyes. It just, it, the, the amount of pain that's happening now in the Congo is just, it's unimaginable. And it's, it's hard encountering it. It's, but it's infinitely harder experiencing it. And that's what's happening to the people who live there. I mean, they have been subjected to generation after generation of misery simply because they were born into a place that is blessed with resources that the world wants. Rubber, ivory, gold, diamonds, silver, nickel, and cobalt. What What was the most shocking thing you, you either witnessed while you were there or was relayed to by somebody who had seen it? Yeah, so I write, I mean, Cobalt Red is, is written as a journey. And so the answer to your question is the end of that journey. Um, uh, I, take, I take the reader... There's only one road that goes through the mining provinces uh, built by China uh, because it made it easier to schlep minerals up and down. Um, uh, so we follow that road deeper and deeper, deeper towards the truth. And there's a moment and an event and something that happened that was that to this day is the most extraordinarily painful thing I ever saw. Uh, but it revealed the truth, the ultimate deepest truth of what's happening there. And so I'll, uh, I'll ask your your listeners to pick up the book and read it uh, and go on that journey uh, because it ends at a place and a moment and 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 
an event that uh, in a way that was so magnificent and terrible at the same time that it was it's just so clear that that a centuries old truth had been revealed uh, up to and including that moment and today uh, that that the the greatest truth the most enormous truth about the Congo and Africa was revealed in that moment and that was also the most painful experience I had uh, in the Congo but there were others you know it always it was always talking to mothers who lost a child it's uh you know you can't you can't uh if people on listening if you have children you know and and of course there's or mothers especially you know you bring this life into the world all your hopes and dreams you know everything everything you put into that child and you know when it's snatched for greed and profit um it the pain people go through is utterly devastating and I mean, you mentioned here that, you know, China paved the road and these obviously, you know, the reasons for that are obvious. Uh, is that the only thing China offer in terms of like ridiculously low income or do they make promises of development uh, thrown in with this as well? Yeah, they were supposed to. You know, the, when I said some time ago, China cornered the global cobalt market before everyone, anyone else knew what happened. It was this deal they struck with the Congolese government in 2009. So right at the dawn of the gadget revolution and at the dawn of the ev transition china saw what was coming and they knew the world would need cobalt they identified where all the cobalt was and they struck a deal uh and that deal was we'll give uh six billion dollars in aid uh and loans we'll build schools and universities and hospitals and will pave 2000 kilometers worth of road in exchange for those three mines. And once that deal was struck, Chinese companies got the next mine, the next, it opened the door, right? And so now China has 15 of the 19 big copper cobalt mines in the Congo. Um, but they never really fulfilled their pledges. They built the one road that they needed hmm. to get to get minerals out of the country. Everything else has been behind schedule, languishing. You know, I write about this in Cobalt Red also. What's fascinating is even the little bits and pieces of work that they're doing that are 10 years behind schedule, they won't even hire locally. They actually import Chinese laborers into Congo to do the work and then schlep them back rather than hire the Congolese people who are desperate for a job, wow. desperate for income. And so that's another whole layer of the injustice that's taking place. Yeah, that's another an hour conversation, surely. But Siddhartha, despite the incredibly serious and quite harrowing topic, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I'm, I'm very grateful for the work you're doing, uh, shining a light on this, banging the drum. Uh, I'll be picking up your book for sure. Um, would you uh, be able to point people to where they can find your book and, and find more of your work if they, if they are so inclined? Absolutely, Stephen. And thank you again for your very gracious invitation to join you. Um, yeah, you can get my book anywhere, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, any online bookseller. It should be in bookstores as well. And I'm on Twitter um, at Siddharth Kara. And I, I joined Instagram a couple of weeks ago. So I think it's it's Siddharth.Kara or something like that. You, you'll find me. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you so much. Lovely to speak to you.
Wow. What a passionate and uh, courageous gentleman. That's, that's real journalism. That's real work. That's real activism. That's uh, quite, quite mind-blowing, really. I, didn't, I did not comprehend the scale of this issue. Uh, maybe you can let me know in the chat if this has made you think a bit more about your, your habits of consumption. Are, are you somebody who thinks you can prob probably change habits or has it made you really angry at all the co corporations and uh, less trustful? Really moving, wasn't it? The... You always scare the hell out of me when the voice of God comes in, Sean. <laughs> <on. laughs> I... Um... I've got a high school friend, I hadn't spoke to him in decades, and he he contacted me a few years ago working for an oil company, and he said that the oil companies basically, they just go in, and if there's indigenous people living there, they just wipe them out or run them off the land, and it just seems that these companies, it's just absolute psychopaths running them, to be at the top of corporate these corporations, you've got to be an absolute psychopath. I mean, look at the bomb, the bomb manufacturers. Hundreds of thousands dead in the Middle East, collateral damage, and more than half of them women and kids. And all they want to do is expand war. It's it's obscene. Yeah, they definitely make a calculation in terms of profits and how much life's worth, for sure. People like Dick Cheney, Halliburton. Yeah, they couldn't give a shit. It's, we're all expendable, and, and as long as they're making money and getting wealthier and more powerful... Yeah, it's especially um, frustrating, this one, because it's not like I can just stop buying T-shirts made in a Chinese sweatshop or reduce dairy consumption. It's uh, It seems to be if I want to use a modern gadget with a battery, I'm, I'm chipping into the system, unfortunately. It's everywhere. Yeah. And if, if, you, if you got to the bottom of it, you wouldn't be able to buy anything. No, absolutely. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. Right, I'm going to urge the viewers to support Stephen Knight. He's got a considerable following on Twitter, and we need to get that considerable following up on his YouTube channel. So please go over and subscribe and support what he does. Huge thank you to everyone who's put questions in, and especially thank you to the patrons for enabling us to have this community and create this content. And Ash, who's buggered off to bed already because it's the middle of the night in Asia. Huge thank you to Ash as well for organising the show. And we will be back next week. Until then, take care out there, everybody, wherever you are in the world. And again, huge thank you to Stephen Knight. Cheers. Thank you, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.